So I'm old enough to remember a time when people had no idea that there were gay people in the world. When I grew up in the 70s and in the 80s, I remember sort of kind of knowing that there were gay people and lesbians in the world, but I certainly didn't know any firsthand, or I didn't know that I knew any because of all the people who were closeted. And I remember thinking that, sure, you know, there might be the one or two gay people on the planet, but certainly there aren't a lot of people who are gay and lesbian. There were some characters on TV in the 70s. I remember the TV show Soap with Billy Crystal. He was gay and maybe trans, but I I might have been too young to really get what that was about. I remember some episodes of All in the Family where they tried to tackle, you know, bigotry with um, the, the, the main guy. He was always bumping up against this bigotry and sort of overcoming it in small ways. And, but again, I, I, th- I think it was just, it just went over my head. I, I, I barely understood heterosexuality when I was a kid, let alone homosexuality. So it was a, it was a very, um, distant thing to me. But then in college, I entered college in late 1989 and instantly I started meeting gay people, lesbians, and friends of mine started coming out and, there were, it just seemed like in my world anyway, there was a sudden explosion. And then through the 90s, there were characters on TV and more awareness, more advocacy, more politics, more, you know, TV uh, interviews and just more awareness. And I feel like we are at the cusp right now in 2018, late 2018, 30, almost 30 years later, I feel like we're at the cusp of that when it comes to asexuality. We're just at the cusp of society and people understanding what asexuality is. And I'm guessing that in the, in the months and years to come, there will be increasing talk about asexuality. There will be much confusion. There will be much bigotry. There will be a lot of terrible tweets and God knows what Trump is going to say about it, but there, there's going to, there's going to, we're in, you know, there's, you know, pre-awareness, there's no talk. So every, everyone just either doesn't even know they're asexual or they have to keep it closeted or they just have to exist in silent happiness or something. And now as we start to, you know, become more aware of it, it starts to become part of the national conversation then people start saying, hey, you know what? I deserve rights and I deserve to be treated just like everyone else. And we should have representation in movies and that kind of thing. You know, there's just going to be increasing talk, which I think is progress into the future. And then eventually we will have integrated the ideas and the notions that we should be integrating into our society, similar to the way that we've been progressively integrating ideas into our society about gays and lesbians. We're sort of just asked, just after the cusp when it comes to trans people and gender issues. We've, we've got a long ways to go. But we, we have other examples of how advocacy and pro- progress in our society has helped move things forward. And, and so I, I have faith that we'll go through the same process with trans and with asexual people. So today, that's what I'm going to talk about. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. So what is asexuality? Well, in a nutshell, and I'm going to go into more detail later, but in a nutshell, it's people who are just not interested in having sex. They don't want to have sex. They're just not interested. 
they're not just abstaining or they're not just celibate like a priest or a MGTOW or an incel. They, people who are asexually or who are asexual, they genuinely just don't want to have sex with other people. It's not like they're doing it for some other reason. Some of you might be thinking, well, okay, so if someone doesn't want to have sex with other people, then that must mean that they're abuse survivors, right? They, they were sexually abused as a kid, and so therefore they don't want to have sex anymore. Is that it? The, the short answer is no. We'll get into that later. Certainly that can be the case for some, but that is not true for most and a way oversimplification, but I'll get into more of that later. Others of you might be thinking, well, you know, okay, sure, you have a 20-year-old girl who identifies as asexual. That's just because she hasn't had any good sex yet. You know, wait till she's 25 and she, or 30 and she has some good sex. Then she'll realize that, you know, sex is good and you don't have to deny yourself such a thing. Again, short answer is no, that's not the case. Uh, certainly that for a small minority of asexual people, that might be a factor. But for the vast majority of people who are asexual, that has nothing to do with it. Having, you know, quality sex doesn't change an asexual into a allosexual person. And allosexual is, you know, the opposite of asexual, someone who is interested in having sex with other people. We'll get into more of that later. What about the prevalence? And again, we'll go into some micro on the prevalence, but just in general, so everyone understands that about uh, 1% of people in Western countries identify as asexual or have been found to be asexual. That's about 3 million people in the United States and perhaps 75 million people around the globe. So again, about, about 1%. So it's not, a, it's not a lot of people, but it certainly isn't, you know, Minuscule. One percent, three million people in the United States. That's a lot of people. All right, so let's go into asexuality in history. There's been a lot of speculation online and in and among authors about asexual figures in history. For example, people speculate that Isaac Newton was asexual. If Isaac Newton were alive today and knew about asexuality, according to these people, he would identify as asexual. He supposedly died a virgin. So, uh, you know, who knows? Jane Austen, the writer, the English novelist uh, who wrote during the late 1700s, early 1800s, they, uh, again, people look at her life and think that she was asexual. She apparently never got married and she wrote a lot of romance books that didn't have any sexual things in it. But, you know, a lot of people don't like to write about sex, so it doesn't mean she's asexual. But, you know, speculate about that. Emily Bronte, uh, similar 1800s English writer. Uh, she, people speculate she was asexual. Chopin, Adolf Hitler, people, uh, uh, you know, speculate that Hitler was asexual. H.P. Lovecraft, Florence Nightingale, Nikola Tesla, all these people have been identified as asexual people. What I will say is there's no way to know because we would have to talk to them. And, and asexuality is, is, is more complex than simply looking at someone and saying that they don't have sex. Just because someone doesn't have sex doesn't mean that they're asexual. We'll get into more of that later. Fic fictional asexual people that the internet talks about are Sherlock Holmes and Sheldon on Big Bang Theory. Uh, I would I would put forth maybe Yoda was asexual. <laughs> uh, Varys from 
Game of Thrones, the spider, the doctor of Doctor Who, the professor on Gilligan's Island, because he didn't seem to really want Marianne or um, what was the other woman's name? Anyway, Bilbo Baggins, people say he was a sexual Dumbledore. Uh, but to me, this is really silly. I mean, in the Lord, just in the Lord of the Rings books, for example, I can't recall anyone having sex with anybody. I mean, I suppose you could say maybe it was implied that Arwen and Aragorn had sex, but I don't even think there that they talk about it much. So I think that looking in fiction for asexuality, unless it's really explicit, like Sheldon, for example, on Big Bang Theory, one could maybe argue that he would be identified as asexual. But again, you'd have to talk to his character because he might actually... I've I've seen a couple episodes of Big Bang Theory and I've seen some of the scenes where they talk about, where they have that as a topic where Sheldon and his girlfriend, his girlfriend wants to have sex with him and he's like, okay, I'll, on your birthday, we have sex. So the rest of the year, we don't have sex. And so is it that he doesn't like to have sex or is it that he just has a lot of trouble with having sex or his compulsions get in the way of him enjoying sex? There's just a lot of things in there that, that we should get into. And, and like I said, there's no definitive answer to these things. But I, want to just, I just want everyone to be a little cautious when we throw out diagnoses, so to speak. Of It's not a diagnosis. It's an it's a de- identity label or a reality that people live, shall I say, similar to being gay or trans. It's like, you know, I don't just identify as being gay. This is, this is my reality. I'm attracted to people of the same gender. So we, we should be careful of, of just throwing around the term asexuality. You know, it's like, you know, looking at uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and saying, oh, he was a gay character. And you know, Sherlock Holmes and Watson were gay for each other. And I've seen people speculate about that. In fact, there's a whole um, internet community centered around that idea. And, you know, it's fun, but we just have to make sure that we're not demeaning or looking too simplistically at these sorts of things. People who live as, uh, people who are asexual are real people who have complex lives and you can't just look at them and their lifestyle and especially in fiction or in history and just be like, oh, you're asexual. You know, it's, it's more complicated than that. Okay, so let's go into some history of the actual concept of asexuality. So the term asexual has been used in biology for a long time. In biology, the word asexual usually describes organisms that do not use sex to reproduce. So animals that just, you know, like bacteria who just sort of, you know, I don't know, I'm not a biologist, but to, you know, a bacteria cell doesn't have sex with another bacteria cell. The bacteria cell just splits into two, right? Uh, Maybe some bacteria have sex. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, uh, in, in fact, asexuality was the predominant way in which organisms reproduced in the past. And there are some animals like bacteria who still use uh, asexuality as the way of reproducing. Strawberries apparently are asexual at least part of the time, if not all the time. Some worms are asexual, uh, and apparently sharks can reproduce asexually. And even some animals that we consider to be sexual, allosexual, 
will some of the members of that group will be found to look as though they're asexual. So one study, uh, Roselli et al. in 2014, looked at rams and found that these rams, 13% of them appeared to be asexual. Now, again, this is not human asexuality, or it, 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 it could be, but it's hard to know because you can't go to the ram and ask them why they're not having sex. Maybe it's you know because of some other reason. Maybe they really want to have sex, but they are refraining for some other reason. So we can't really say that the rams are, quote-unquote, asexual in, in the way that we use it with humans. But there are studies looking at animals, and the, the idea goes is that among a population of a species, there are, in mammals, you'll find that there are, there's a, there's heterosexual, uh, you know, uh, members of the species. There often is a percentage of homosexual people or, uh, you know, members of the species. And what they're all saying is like, hey, there's also another per- percentage among some species of seemingly asexual that they they don't have sex with anybody. And you'll also find different spectrums regarding how interested certain members are in sex and how disinterested. So there's there's just a lot of variation even when you look at other animals regarding sexuality and what they are attracted to and how intensely their attraction is. When it comes to humans, Kinsey et al. in 1948, 1953 studied a lot of things regarding sex, including people who weren't interested in having sex. Kinsey et al., famous sex researcher in the 40s and 50s, found that there, when they interviewed people, that they were like, oh, there's, there's, you know, because they interviewed heterosexuals and they were like, hey, there's a good percentage of people who are closeted homosexuals and oh hey there's there's this other group of people who actually seem to not be attracted to anybody they don't want to have sex with someone of the opposite gender and they don't want to have sex with someone of the same gender they're just not interested in sex at all johnson another famous sex researcher 1977 coined the term asexual referring to people who lack sexual desire so now we're getting more into not just behavior but what's going on on the inside, which is a key to, to understanding asexuality. Just not having sex doesn't make you asexual. That The key to understanding the current conceptualization of asexuality for the identity of sexuality is to understand that it's an internal experience for the person, that they lack sexual desire. Because the thing is, is that someone who identifies as asexual might actually engage in sex with other people for various reasons. Maybe they're married and they want to please their spouse. Maybe they just want to, they're bored, they want to pass the time. You know, there's a lot of reasons why an asexual person might have sex when they don't actually have any attraction sexually for, to, to other people. You could say the same for gay people, right? If you had a gay man and he was only attracted to men and not attracted to women, but let's say he didn't know he was gay or, you know, it hadn't come out yet when he was younger and he gets married and has kids and his wife wants to have uh, sex. He is not attracted to her sexually, but he has sex with her sometimes because he knows that it'll keep their relationship strong and 
maybe even he does it for procreation reasons, who knows. But the point is, is that just because he is married to a woman and he is having sex with a woman on a semi-regular basis, that does not take away the fact that he is gay, right? Now, we'd have to ask him and say, you know, do you identify as gay? What's your internal experience like? Are you attracted to women? Blah, blah, blah. And so this is a key understanding to understanding asexuality. Storms, another researcher, author, 1979, 1980, 1981, was the first to depict asexuality as a sexual orientation. So in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, Storms introduced the notion of looking at asexuality as a sexual orientation, not just something that we observe in other people. Okay, so let's go into detail about what asexuality is. I've talked about it a little bit so far, but let's really comb through the details so that everyone can understand the full breadth of the concept. So again, as I said before, an asexual person does not experience sexual attraction. They, they don't experience that in themselves. In the same way that a 100% heterosexual person may not experience sexual attraction to people of the same gender or a lesbian, a hundred percent lesbian may not experience any sexual attraction to male gendered people. So that's the idea is that asexual people have, they don't experience sexual attraction for anybody. And we can all relate to that, right? Right? We can all, or at least most of us, can relate to the fact that there are some people we're not sexually attracted to. And you couldn't pay us enough to have sex with those people, right? Well, for asexual people, everyone is on that list. <laughs> you know, you could, you could, I mean, you know, you probably, some asexual people will have sex with other people, but my, you know, I hope you get my meaning. Anyway, some Asexual people are just simply uninterested in sex. They're just like, nah, not really my thing. You know, I'd, if if I had a choice, I wouldn't have sex for the rest of my life. But there are other asexual people who are actually fully repulsed by the idea of sex. It's actually something that's quite disgusting to them to think about. So, so you have uninterested, the meh type of asexual people towards sexuality, and you have the you know people who are repulsed by it. And again, as I said earlier, this is not to be confused with celibacy or just refraining from having sex. It's not abstaining like a priest. It's actual dislike of having sex with anybody. Also, as I said earlier, some say it's a sexual orientation. I use it as a sexual orientation like heterosexuality or homosexuality or bisexuality. And many people in the world identify as being asexual, as in, I am a cisgender asexual male. Now, the other thing here to point out is that people who are asexual, who identify as such and don't experience any sexual attraction to anybody, they might or might not experience other forms of attraction. So they might have, so there are other asexual people have helped us to understand that there are different types of attraction when it comes to other human beings. And as a society, I think we tend to just blanketly call those all sexual attraction because we're so repressed sexually that we can't help but to look at everything through that lens. 
But there are other kinds of attraction, right, that an asexual person might or might not experience that really have nothing to do with sex. Like there's romantic attraction, like having a partner or a companion, right? So an asexual person might have a a ton of romantic attraction to other people. They want to date them. They want to look at them. They want to hang out with them. They're, they want to, you know, lay around in bed with them. And they don't want them to spend any time with other people. These, this is romantic attraction. But at the same time, an asexual person would say, yeah, but I don't want to have sex with that person. I'm very romantically attracted, but I don't want to have sex with that person. So that's an important thing. There's actually something called aromanticism or being aromantic, which is also the absence of having any – of experiencing any romantic attraction to anybody else. So this is interesting, right? Because I think in other circles, people might think that romantic attraction is just a nice way of saying sexual attraction. But we see in the world there are people who lack sexual attraction for other people but have romantic attraction. So they must be different experiences, right? There's also what they call aesthetic attraction. So asexual people may or may not have this as well in which they are attracted to the way that people look, but they, do, but they still don't want to have sex with them, right? So they might say like, yeah, I think that dude's attractive, but I don't want to have sex with that guy. <laughs> and here's a couple quotes from some articles that I read from people who identify as asexual. Quote, being asexual, you're not attracted sexually. I can appreciate my partner's aesthetics, but it's roughly the same as... But it's roughly the same blah, 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 when I look at a marble statue in a museum. So I, that's a weird sentence. But anyway, so this person's saying, I don't, I, I like the way my partner looks, but I, that doesn't mean I want to have sex with them. And it's the same as when I look at a marble statue in a museum. I don't want to have sex with that statue, but I like the way the muscles look or the boobs look or whatever, you know. Another quote from another article, I don't like chocolate cake. I can see a slice and think that it looks good, but I know if I bite into it, I'm not going to enjoy it, end quote. So, and I think most of us can relate to that, right? I'm actually that way. When I look at cake, I just think, man, does that look good? But through my experience in my later years, I know that if I eat cake, I will feel like crap afterwards. There's just, I mean, I mean, it'll, it'll be sort of good going down, but instantly, as soon as it hits my stomach, there's something about cake that just, I think it's sugar in general. I chocolate is starting to get bad for me. So yeah, I, I can appreciate, but at the same time, I'm deeply attracted to cake and chocolate. So I can't really relate on that level completely. But anyway, so again, you can have sexual attraction or no sexual attraction to others. You can have romantic attraction or no romantic attraction to others. You can have aesthetic attraction or no aesthetic attraction. And then the, th the fourth one here is sensual attraction or sens sensual interest. So this is the label that they use for being attracted to people because you want to cuddle with them or you want to hug them or you might want to kiss them. But again, you don't want to have sex. Here's another quote from another article. So this is a person talking about them and their partner. We hug, we kiss on the cheek. There's a lot of verbal intimacy rather than physical intimacy. But we don't do anything sexual. We have no plans to do so or desire it. End quote. 
So here we have someone who likes to hug, they like to kiss on the cheek, but they don't want to have sex. And again, I think in our society, we tend to lump all these things into a sexual thing. It's actually, I might be particularly American, because I see in other cultures around the world more of this sensual touching, or I don't know what you would call it, but just touching other people in, in ways like hugging or kissing or holding hands, and it not being immediately identified as a sexual act. Whereas in American society, we look at those things and instantly think, ooh, that's a sexual act. And no, of course not. That's silly. So with asexual people, they might actually enjoy kissing and huggling. That's good. Huggling and cuggling. (laughs) And that's important to point out. But some of them might not. Some people are asexual. They're aromantic. They don't appreciate the aesthetics in other people, and they're not interested in any sensual touch. So there's just a wide variety of people who are asexual. Okay, what about sexual arousal? Do asexual people get boners? Do they get wet, so to speak? And the answer is yes, they may or may not have that. But again, when they get boners and when they get wet and engorged or whatever we want to say, they still don't want to have sex with other people. Here's another quote from a participant in a study. I did, you know, test the equipment and everything works fine, pleasurable and all. It's just not actually attracted to anything. So this person's saying, look, I tested out my genitals. I can, I can make it work. It works fine, but it and, you know, it's great, feels good, but it, I don't have any des- desire to share it with someone else. Also, asexual people might have, orgas- might have orgasms. Uh, some don't, but some do. Many do. In fact, I would say most do. Brado and colleagues' study in 2010, they found that there was no difference in orgasm between asexual people and allosexual people. So that's important to point out because I think one myth that people might jump to is like, well, these people who are calling themselves asexual, I, be- I bet you they're just people who can't have orgasms and and therefore they hate sex because they can't have any orgasms. Well, here we see that research has found that asexual people can and maybe often do have orgasms and they still have no sexual attraction to other humans. Brado and Yule in 2011 found that asexual women had less trouble reaching orgasm, that they reached orgasms more often during sex and were more satisfied with their ability to reach orgasm. Now, it should be pointed out that these studies had small sample sizes, but I just want to point this out. If, if this is, the fact is, is asexuality research is pretty much in its infancy. So we'll find out more information later. But I just want to point out that this one study found that asexual women had orgasms quicker than allosexual women and that they were more uh, satisfied with their ability to reach orgasms. So it's, it's interesting to point out. Uh, it's, it, I could speculate as to why. Maybe it's because asexual women have orgasms less less often and therefore are 
sort of bursting, <laughs> their their dam is bursting, and when all you got to do is sort of touch the dam and it you know and it bursts. <laughs> that's a terrible analogy, but you know it's one speculation. Of course, there are many asexual people who orgasm regularly through masturbation or through sex. You know, because again, a lot of asexual people engage in sex for various reasons. So along those lines, asexual people masturbate uh, at similar rates to allosexual people, and they might even fantasize about other people sexually. But again, they don't want to actually engage in that, in that fantasy and actually have sex with other people. Research has found that a significant amount of asexual people engage in masturbation. One study, Brado and colleagues 2010, found that about 80% of asexual men and women engage in masturbation. So it's, you know, pretty high. 80% of asexual people masturbate, um, according to this one study. But other studies, uh, like Bogert 2013, found that on average, asexual people masturbate uh, to a less frequent degree. And Brado and Yule in 2011 found no difference in frequency of masturbation in asexual women compared to allosexual women. So there's been some research, and in preliminary, you know, findings indicate that when it comes to masturbation, asexual people are the same as allosexual people. Maybe they masturbate a little less often, but they still masturbate. Now, they will often report that they fantasize about different things or their experience of fantasy is different. Like they tend to, on average, indicate that they fantasize not about particular people. Like they don't, they don't target actual people in their lives or maybe even actual people. And I'll get more into that later. Uh, but again... There are some asexual people who don't masturbate at all, and it's a part of their asexuality. They don't experience any arousal ever. They don't like to fantasize. They don't like to masturbate. These people, this group of asexuals have been coined the non-libidoist asexuals. So they lack a libido, so they're non-libidoist Asexual people have the same attachment needs as anybody else. We all generally need attachment, the vast majority of us. I would argue every, even the psychopaths need attachment. There's very few people who lack the need for any attachment. Some people have a lesser need, avoidant people, uh, schizotypal people, schizoid people. But I would, I've found that even those people have attachment needs. They're just different. But anyway, asexuals have the same attachment needs that anybody else would. So they might fulfill those attachment needs through family or friends or even romantic relationships that are not sexual, you know, if, for their hope anyway. Some asexuals are asexual for life, meaning that they realize they're asexual when they're, you know, 12 and they live their entire life knowing that they're asexual and never have and try to never have sex with anyone for their entire life. This is similar to people who have asexual orient, other sexual orientations, right? But also some people might actually phase in and out of different sexualities. Again, similar to other sexual orientations. Someone might identify as heterosexual and then 
they later in life, 35 years old, they're like, hey, I think I'm lesbian, actually. I, I appreciated my heterosexual years, but I think I've changed, and now I'm lesbian. And they uh, identify as a lesbian for 20 years. And maybe after that, they enter a phase of asexuality, where they're not attracted to anybody. So asexuality can be both. It can be both something that someone identifies with or even has the experiences of for a period of time that isn't their entire life, and other people will say it's their entire life. But in general, people who are asexual, particularly by the time they're 25, 30 years old, if they're still identifying that way, it tends to stick, or at least in my anecdotal experience. Okay, so let's continue this talk, but let's take a break first. What do you say? Okay, we're back from the break. If you like this podcast and the various different things we talk about, I would invite you to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. In this podcast of almost 800 episodes, we talk about a lot of things, but one of the things that I have spent a lot of time and effort on is advocating for greater understanding of sexual orientations in general and for uh, sexual sex positivity, for less shaming, less Victorian attitudes, more compassion, more self-compassion. And so if you are in agreement with those political views, I invite you to become a patron because the more funds we have for the podcast, the more time and effort I can put into adv advocacy in this way. And uh, the different charities that we've given to, for example, we gave a, a lot of money from patron money. We gave it to the Trevor Project, which helps to save the lives literally of LGBTQ youth who uh, might be contemplating suicide. And so it helps them to uh, get through those difficult years. So if you support that political view, I, I encourage you to become a patron. I, um, I think as I move forward, I will start to identify certain political stances that I want to be a part of, and this is definitely one of them. I am a. I, I don't identify. I'm. I identify as a cisgender heterosexual male, and so it, it's not uh, for me personally. But when I see people in the world being treated unfairly, it hurts my feelings and makes me extremely rageful. Uh, I don't know what that is, but ever since I was young, I have known that I have an abnormal sense of, of uh, justice and of, and a high reactivity to it. I, I, if you listen to this podcast, you've you've seen it a little bit, but honestly, you've you've never seen me as rageful as I can as I actually can be when it comes to certain political things. And for example, for asexuals, the way that society treats them is so inherently illogical and upsetting to me, and I have to do something about it. It's just, it's so bothersome that innocent people who are just saying, hey, they're just raising their hand and they're just be like, hey, you know what? I don't know why, but I am not into sex and I don't want to have sex and I have no sexual attraction for other people. 
for society to treat that person badly, even in a small way, is so stupid and unnecessary and wrong and immoral and anti-American. And anti- if you're a Christian, it's anti-Christian. And it, it's just so uh, awful. And I want to try to change that in my small, tiny little way. And so if you are on board with me, again, I, I invite you to uh, be a patron of the podcast. That's how I get the literal time and, and uh, uh, effort to be able to advocate for such things. This episode... Incidentally, I thought I could prep for it in a day, and I actually plan on talking with Umberto about this, but in the time that I had to prep for uh, podcasting with him before he came over, I figured out, oh my God, this topic is so much bigger than I realized. And so um, I dedicated a couple weeks of my free time to this. So, you know, probably, it's probably probably been about 50 to 60 hours of researching and, and talking to people about this to prep for this. So, um, so again, please become a patron. All right. So many asexual people, uh, might have sex regardless of not being into having sex. Research has found that about 35% of asexual people have had sex at some point in their lives, which actually isn't that much when you think about it, right? Because in my mind, when I thought about asexual people, I thought, well, asexual people might have, they must have a really hard time in this world because they have to fit into a allosexual world. And they probably just, due to necessity, have probably had to give in and have sex with people even though they're not really into it. But according to this, and I would have thought, you know, percentage-wise, I would have been like, I don't know, 80-90% of asexuals have had sex at some point in their life, at least once anyway, just to even see if they like it. But there's been some research that said that only 35% of asexual people have had sex at, at, you know, at least once in their lives. So, but other research have found higher numbers than that. But anyway, the point is, is that, uh, again, we don't really know the full details, but some asexual people will have sex with other people. Some of them, I'm guessing, because they're being pressured unfairly by spouses or partners. But others, they, like I said before, they might just do it because they're like, look, you know, I'm, I'm asexual and my wife is, is allosexual and I want her to be happy. And so I'm going to have sex with her. And, you know, I'm not into it, but I'm not averse to it. So, you know, it's fine. I'll do it. And when researchers have looked at why asexual people typically have sex, and it's just for that reason, it's to please their romantic partners. This is actually a really common experience. Having said that, there are plenty of asexual people who have an agreement with their spouse that they don't have sex, or they are in... Um, relationships with other asexual people, which is probably the perfect situation, right? If you're a romantic, per, if you know, if you're into romance and you're into sensual touch and you're into aesthetic uh, attraction, but you're not into sexual attraction, then having a, another asexual partner who also is interested in hugging and kissing and cuddling and 
Also interested in romance is the perfect situation, similar to the way if you're gay, having a gay partner is probably best for you, right? <laughs> so that kind of thing. It's all about compatibility, folks. Asexual people may vary regarding their sex positivity. Uh, Kerrigan, 2011, found this to be true, which I found to be an interesting way of looking at this, is that some asexual... So one of the myths that I think might be out there is that, oh, asexual people, they're probably just a bunch of stick-in-the-mud people who hate sex. You know, they're real prissy and and uptight and this kind of thing. And of course that's silly, but one researcher actually found this to be silly and they found that there's a spectrum. So you have some people who are very sex positive, meaning that they're totally cool with people having sex. They're, they're totally cool with the idea of other people having sex. They're totally cool with maybe even seeing other people have sex, but they're just not interested in having sex themselves. They have no sexual attraction. They have no, desire to have sex with other people themselves. They might even watch pornography and watching other people having sex while they masturbate, this kind of thing, maybe, anyway. but So some people are very sex positive. Some other people might be a little agnostic about sex. They're not, they're not sex positive per se, and they're just sort of like, eh, you know, I'm not really into sex and I'd rather not have it in my life. I get that people like to have sex in the world, but it's, you know, it's just not really for me. And here's one quote from an article that I found from an asexual person along these lines. They said, it's really weird how much sex is in cinemas. And when there's kissing on TV, I have to close my eyes and look away. So it, when I read this article, it did actually kind of hit me about how much sexuality is a part of our culture and, and around the world, right? When you have Empire Strikes Back and you see Han and Leia having to navigate, you know, their relationship, she's a princess and he's just a scruffy, uh, scruffy faced nerf herder, a scruffy nerfer, and a scoundrel, and the whole tension around will they or won't they, it's just highly prevalent in in movies and in TV shows and stories. Will they have sex? And, and, and we're supposed to be able to identify with these people. We're supposed to be able to say, oh, you know, I, I can sense that tension. And if you can't identify with that at all, like you have no sexual attraction for other people, then it must be really weird to watch these TV shows and these movies and just be like, why, you know, this, this stuff is just so crazy. Like, I, why are people sexually attracted to other people? It doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. I don't like it. It's not appealing to me. I wish I didn't have to see it so often. And so I think what I, it's my category is I'm just calling them agnostic sex people. And then there are some asexual people who are actually anti-sex. To them, the idea of having sex is really problematic. They really think that sex is like gross or politically problematic or uh, disgusting or deeply troubling to them. You're just like, you know, they might say, I cannot understand why you would want one of those inside of you, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So they don't have a lot of sex positivity in that way. They might, again, be kind of cool with the idea that other people are having sex, but it's really, really repulsive to them. So 
Again, there's a wide variety of asexual people with a wide variety of attitudes towards sex in the world. Okay, and the last thing I'll say about asexuality is that having understood, or if you understand everything I've said so far, there's a wide variety of people who identify as asexual. The key component of asexuality is that they don't experience sexual attraction to other people, which means that they're not likely to have sex with other people, but they might actually have sex with other people for various different reasons. They might masturbate. They might have sexual fantasies. They might not. They might have romantic attraction or sensual interests or aesthetic attraction to other people. They might not. It's not just celibacy. So if you understand all that in your mind and uh, make sure you understand that before I move forward, <laughs> you know, solidify all those ideas in your head. Because the next, the last point I want to make about, a, you know, how to describe asexuality is that sometimes people who lack sexual drive, it's due to what we might identify as a, a, a reason that can be treated. Like, for example, someone who has been traumatized, specifically experiencing early sexual trauma, right? If you were sexually abused as a child, your emerging sexuality through your teen years and into early adulthood might become quite suppressed due to complications in the way that you experience sexuality. You might actually, upon have, being aroused sexually, you might actually be triggered to experience supreme distress due to your PTSD. And Sato uh, 2008 found this to be true. So it's now, uh, it's important to know that the vast majority of people who identify as asexual, this is not the case. But you can imagine that for someone who has been sexually abused, that you know, they're 35 years old and they have PTSD about sexuality and they might identify as being asexual. They just be like, look, you know, I'm, they, they, they may or may not even know why, right? But let's say they do know why. Let's say they're like, yeah, I was sexually abused by my father when I was a child and I experimented with having sex with other people in my early life and, and found that I hated it. And yeah, I if I recovered from my trauma, I guess there's a possibility that my enjoyment of sex might emerge. But you know what? I don't care. I don't like sex, and that's fine with me. So there's a, you know, this. So the converse to this that people will propose, which of course we have no way of demonstrating, is that some people are just born asexual. Is that you, you know, in the same way that some people are born gay or born lesbian or born trans or born hetero or born cis, there are people who say that it has nothing to do with the environment, right? It, you're just, you're just, it's just who you are. It's in your bones. And certainly I absolutely adhere to this point of view, but we just can't really know. You know, maybe every, maybe every hetero person has to have an experience to sort of push them to heterosexuality. It's just impossible for us to demonstrate and impossible given ethics for us to experiment on. If we really wanted to find this out, we would take hundreds of babies and raise them in different environment uh, bubbles and see how much environment plays into sexual orientation. 
But anyway, so know that for some, trauma might be a factor in asexuality. Uh, but I, I caution you to uh, think, oh, that person's asexual, therefore they've been sexually traumatized. That is n- probably not a good guess to make because I would imagine a very small minority of people fit this narrative. Stress can also lead to a lack of stre- of, of sex drive. Uh, it's hard to imagine a 30-year-old asexual person having consistent high stress that will completely eliminate their sexual drive that will lead them to believe they're asexual. Because here, here's the thing. If you have, if you're, if you're, allos, if you're allosexual, this means that you probably have a pretty deep biological drive to have sex, at least some of the time. And a little bit of, or a lot of stress might get in the way some of the times, but it's not going to get in the way all the time, right? So, you know, but we can imagine that ongoing stress you know, say you have a 25-year-old person, 23-year-old person who has been experiencing lots of grief, lots of stress, and they've just never been able to relax to the point where sex has been enjoyable to them, and, and they've had a lot of bad sexual experiences, and so they're just like, eh, I'm just not really into sex. And once you reduce their stress and they're able to navigate relationships in a different way, maybe their allo, their deep-seated allosexuality will emerge. Hard to say, but, you know, something clinically to, to look at. An STI could cause someone to think about asexuality. People have a lot of shame about having sexually transmitted infections. People might even have pain as a result or other kinds of limitations resulting from an STI that could lead to, could be a factor involved in someone identifying as asexual. Again, there are plenty of people. In fact, I would say most people who identify as asexual, when you really look at them, these factors don't really play a role. Uh, It'd be like saying, you know, an STI made me gay or something. You know, it's like, it's like, no, people who are asexual are deeply asexual. They really are just like, you know what? I've known for years that there's just something different about me. I just am not attracted to other human beings. I get why people have sex, I guess, but it's just not my thing. And an STI isn't going to make me this way. You know, this is pretty this is pretty deeply in my personality. So I just want to remind that. But again, looking at some other factors that can lead to someone considering asexuality or cuz the thing is is I get a lot of emails from people asking me, you know, what I think about their asexuality. And they will often identify various different factors. And I'll get into the treatment in terms of how to, how to help someone explore their sexuality at the end here. But, but for some people, when they're first beginning to explore this, there's a big question mark in their mind that they wonder, am I, am I asexual truly? Or do I have factors that are affecting me, me and suppressing my allosexuality? And so for a lot of people, that's a question. And for some of them, they will emerge after exploration that, oh, I, you know, the medication I was taking or the stress I was under or the trauma that I hadn't recovered from, that was suppressing my allosexuality. And now that I've overcome those issues, I now have, you know, a a rich sexual attraction to other people. 
But for others, they will do all those things and they'll find that, nope, I still have no attraction to other human beings. And so for a lot of people, it's an exploration thing. And so I'm just going over those other factors that might be involved in suppressing allosexuality. And that's my phrase. I don't know if I like it, suppressing allosexuality that I just made up. So other issues that might suppress allosexuality is the thinning of genital tissues or vaginal dryness or pain, pain during sex, right? Um, however, one study, Brado and colleagues, 2010, found that there's not any difference in the scores on sexual pain between asexual women and sexual women, allosexual women. However, on the other hand, Brado and Ewell in 2011 found that, that for asexual women, there was a slight increased score on pain scores. So in other words, some studies indicate that there are, among asexual people, they they don't experience pain any more than, than allosexual people. So pain doesn't seem to be a, a major reason, you know, because again, that could be a myth that could be thrown around, right? It's like, well, the only reason why you're asexual is because you must be experiencing some kind of pain. And once we address that pain, then you'll like sex again. And some studies show that there's not as much, uh, it's they, that asexual people experience the same amount of pain during sex as allosexual people. However, another study found that there's a slight uh, increase in the rate of pain uh, among asexual women during sex, but probably not much of a, of a thing there. But you could imagine that, say, you had some functional biological problem with regards to your genitals that could result in being asexual, right? Even though you have a deep desire to have sex with other people, the pain is so recurrent that it, through you know, repetition, just eliminates any sexual drive you have towards other people. You know, you can see that happening. Erectile dysfunction uh, from various different issues could be, you know, low blood pressure or some medication you're taking could cause someone to say, you know what, I guess I'm not really attracted to other people, even though they might actually have an an allosexual urge. They, they're just like, well, I don't really get boners other people, and a, a lot of my sexual experiences with others tends to go badly, so maybe I just don't have enough attraction to other people. Because that's the other thing about when people are exploring you know, whether or not they're allosexual or asexual, it's hard to know what is norm, what is the normal amount of sexual attraction to other people, right? Or what's the normal range, right? Because it's not something you can actually see. It's only something you can describe inside of you. So that's another issue. Depression, anxiety can also definitely suppress someone's natural allosexuality, Medication in particular, uh, there's a lot of medications for depression and anxiety that will completely eliminate your sexual libido. I've seen this many times clinically. It's, it's, it's a big problem, and it's a, it's a problem that a lot of physicians, psychiatrists don't pay enough attention to. You'll have someone that will be coming in with mild depression, you know, and the psychiatrist is like, okay, well, there's this SSRI that will help eliminate those mild depressive symptoms. Your sleep will get a little better. Your, you'll, you'll cry a little less often. You'll be a little bit more motivated. But what they don't say is, and by the way, 
taking this pill will completely eliminate your drive for sex. You will not want to have sex with your spouse ever again for the rest of your life on this pill. Sex with this person, sex with your spouse will be completely abhorrent to you, <laughs> which some of these meds can ab- absolutely do. They don't always do it. Uh, also, uh, the birth control pill can do this to a lot of women as well. There's a lot of things that can interfere with someone's sexual drive and their attraction to other people. So that's another thing to look at, right? So a, a woman comes in and says, for the past 20 years, I have not wanted to have sex with anybody. And, you know, I've obliged my husband every now and then, you know, maybe once every couple of years, but man, it's just not really something I want to be doing. And at first blush, you might be thinking, oh, okay, well, clearly this person is asexual, right? Well, there's a lot of other possibilities, medication, the relationship problems. Uh, there's just a lot of different things that can contribute to that. Having said that, you know, and I'll get into more of this later, I guess I'm getting into it now as I'm talking about it. We need to also very much embrace the full possibility that the person actually is asexual. We don't want to look at everyone who lacks sexual drive as necessarily someone who has a suppressed allosexuality. Uh, we just want to be open to all things. In fact, we probably should be a, a little more open to the possibility of asexuality because society will definitely push them in the other direction anyway, so we might want to counteract that a little bit anyway. Obviously, relationship conflict and attachment insecurity can affect someone's allosexuality. Uh, also, never having a responsive sexual partner can absolutely cause someone to think that sex is always you know, terrible. Also, there are some people who have phobias of – it's very specific things. We call specific phobias of genitals or of having sex or of if, you know, if you're a heterosexual woman, having something inside of you could – you could be phobic about that just like any other phobia. Sometimes people associate phobias with fear, like fear of snakes or something. And certainly that's one way of looking at phobias. But another way of looking at phobias is just aversion to. So some people have phobias for things with holes. Like if you've ever seen a lotus root or the back of a frog, (laughs) I hope I'm not triggering anybody, or bubbles coming out of mud, you know, a bunch of bubbles coming out of mud. Some I can't remember the uh, the exact phobia, um, but it's a phobia that something like five ten percent of people have to varying degree, and some people have it a lot. And so you wouldn't say that the person is afraid of seeing holes and things; they just have an extreme aversion to it. Similar to like uh, for me, for example. When I f- hear styrofoam rubbing against each other or someone rubbing on a balloon, that that sound drives me crazy. I'm not afraid of it. I'm just very averse to that sound. It, it, it makes my teeth hurt. <laughs> and so for some people, they have – it's a very rare condition, but some, you know, this could lead to asexuality. They have, they have a phobia or an extreme aversion to genitals. And they're just completely disgusted. They can't stand looking at it. They can't stand thinking about it. It just, it's like, you know, scratching on a chalkboard to them just to think about people's genitals or think about sex in general, that kind of stuff. So again, 
those are the things that I found in the research and things that I've, I've found clinically that can, and there's many more possibilities, but those are the main ones. Things that what I guess I'm framing as things that can interfere with allosexuality. So you're an allosexual person, you have a normal, or a, you have a normal, for an allosexual person, you have a normal amount of sexual attraction to other people. And th- some, one or more things are getting in the way of your sexual, of your natural sexual attraction to other people. And you, when you, th- and you experience life as an asexual person. Now, this person, people like this, there's nothing wrong with them saying, you know what, I'm asexual and I, I don't care. I don't, I, I, I guess it's possible that I have an allosexual person on the inside of me that, want, that, you know, as being suppressed by trauma or depression or attachment insecurity or phobia of genitals or whatever. And I don't care. I don't care enough to change it. It's not a big deal to me. I don't miss what I don't care about. And so I'm just going to continue being an asexual person, even though I guess it's possible that I wasn't born this way, so to speak. That is totally fine. People are free to do what they want. It is not a big deal for someone to say, I don't like sex. There's, you know, people can like sex. You can not like sex. There's something very threatening to a paternal society when people do this when they don't fit into our heteronormative cisgender world. And it's very upsetting politically. If you went on Fox News and said you were asexual, I'm guessing that wouldn't go over very well. There's just something upsetting to not being quote unquote normal or traditional in our society. And so there's nothing wrong with, with saying, I'm asexual. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, regardless of where it comes from. There's you know it's just what you want to do with your life and how you you are potentially. But I I, I do want to point out that there's a lot of debate, and of course, as I said, no way to know that some people are born asexual in this, in the way that some people are born allosexual, and. There are potentially another group of people who are born allosexual, but has but they have something happen to them where they feel as though they're quote unquote asexual. Now, those people, as I said, are completely free politically, morally, ethically to continue to identify as asexual. And it doesn't mean they're any less asexual than the quote unquote people who were born asexual, which of course we have no way of knowing. So there's no such thing as a real asexual and a, you know, interloper asexual. There's just asexual people. You know, the same could be said, I guess, in the reverse, right? Say you're born asexual and you take a medication and suddenly you have all this sexual attraction to other people. And you're like, oh, I guess I'm allosexual now. Well, would we say to that person, no, you're, you're not a real allosexual. You're actually an asexual person who is taking a medication to make you allosexual. We wouldn't say that. At least I hope we, we wouldn't say that. If that person wants to say, you know what? I'm allosexual now only because I take this medication. And isn't that weird? Of course, this doesn't exist, but, you know, just in a hypothetical world. And we wouldn't say like, hey, 
stop it. You can't identify as allosexual. That's, that's politically wrong. You're an interloper. It's like, ah, come on. Yeah. Let's, let's take it easy on individuals. Let's, let's let them identify however they want to and value that and know that there are, a, there are many roads to many lives. <laughs> let's just put it that way. Okay. And for you asexual people out there, let me know what you think What I'm as I'm talking about this, because I'm curious. All right. I am on page five of my 18 pages of notes. So this is going to be another long one. All right. So typical stages of becoming out, so to speak, or of, of individual discovery of asexuality are the following. Uh, this is based on things that I've read and also clinical experience. So people who are asexual, sometimes they, they start off in early in life, typically in their teenage years, not knowing about asexuality as a thing. They, they don't know... They don't know the term. They don't know the identity. They don't know the internet area or the community. They don't know anything about asexuality. And yet they have no sexual desire for other people. But they believe, given you know pressures from society and family and maybe internal pressures, that they need to give sex a try. And, <clears throat> and they give sex a try, and it doesn't go very well. Maybe they try it a couple more times. It doesn't go very well. And they instantly think that there's something wrong with them. And, but at the same time, they're like, well, sex is not very enjoyable for me, so I'm going to avoid it. Then friends, family, society starts to notice there's something different about this person, and they become marginalized by their, the people around them. People might not want to hang out with them as much. They might stigmatize them. You know, maybe, oh, you're such a Sheldon from Big Bang Theory or something. You know, there's there can be a lot of hurtful things that people will say when they don't understand something. And then the asexual person feels bad about themselves and they try to make sense of it all. They try to maybe experiment with different identities. Maybe I'm gay. Maybe I'm trans. Maybe they are gay. Maybe they are trans. But the point is, is they start trying to figure it out, right? And... At some point, hopefully, they look on the internet and hopefully they find the asexual community. And in my experience, when this happens, asexual people instantly know that they're asexual. They will, they will read just a couple sentences of the asexuality thing and they'll be, just be like, oh my God, that's me. Oh my God, that's me. I, I didn't know that was a thing. I thought I was the only one on the planet who was like this. I thought the entire world was a sexual world. And now I'm realizing that there are millions of, of other people who are like me, who don't experience any sexual attraction for other people, and they feel liberated. And they start to begin to live a life that they deserve, where they start to say to themselves, I'm okay with being asexual. And hey, there are other asexual people in the world. And there are ways that I can advocate for myself. And there are different kinds of relationships that maybe don't involve any sex. But these people obviously still experience a lot of societal marginalization and maybe pressure from family and friends to get into a sexual relationship and have children. You know, a very common family statement will be like, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? You know, it's just, it's just a refrain that people have which is well-meaning, I suppose, but 
completely disregards not only asexual people, but people who aren't interested in having children or people who are in polyamorous relationships, maybe. You know, there's just a lot of different lives that are moral and desired by people. And this compulsion to like, everyone must have, everyone must get married. They must have children. You know, it's, it's one of the most common happy endings to a movie is, and, and the couple got married and they had five children. You know, it's just this, it's fine to do that. Obviously, if that's your life, it's a wonderful life to do that. And for many, it's the perfect life, but it's not the perfect life for everybody. And as we've been talking about this episode, some people don't want to have sex with other people. So the notion of riding off in the sunset with your sexual partner is, is not enjoyable for them. And so the point is, is that even though the typical stages involve people eventually finding the asexual community, becoming liberated, uh, having more self-esteem around it, accepting themselves around this, they, that doesn't mean that the journey is over. They still have to navigate society. Okay, so let's go into some definitions here. There are some terms that I, I want to talk about. Again, asexuality, someone who is asexual, is someone who does not experience sexual attraction and does not want to have sex. So again, it's not just someone who doesn't have, doesn't have sex. It's an internal, you, you, you can't look at someone and, and from their behavior know they're asexual. You have to ask them, are you sexually attracted to other people? And if they're like, no, and then you say, do you want to have sex with other people? And they're like, no, then you say, here's the definition of asexuality. Do you, do you identify as asexual? And they'd be like, actually, yes. And so, so that's another point I want to give out, put forth is in the literature anyway, is there are two different ways of looking at asexuality. One is, is that it's a label that we put on other people that we ask them, are you attracted to other people? Do you want to have sex with other people? How much sex have you had with other people? Have you, have you ever wanted to have sex with other people? And then a expert identifies that person as being asexual. So, so top down, it's like, well, you're asexual. The other way of looking at asexuality is that it's something that you can only identify as. So in the same way that I can't look at someone, ask them a bunch of questions and say, you are gay. And they're like, no, I'm not. And you can't, you can't argue with them. You can't be like, yeah, you are, you know, or trans or something. You can't just say, based on my assessment, you are a trans person. You, you, you can't do that politically or it doesn't make any sense. It's, and why would you want to? So, so the other way of looking at it is that you have to ask people. So you, you put forth the definition, the common def definition of asexuality and you say, so do you identify as asexual? Then, then, then you know whether or not someone's asexual or not. They might not even uh, use the same definition. To me, this second one makes the most sense to me, and I believe this will be the common understanding of it moving forward. Another term here is demisexual. This is someone who is only attracted to people after forming a strong bond with them. So... When I read this in the literature, I was like, well, isn't that everybody? <laughs> isn't that, or isn't that most people? Aren't most people mostly attracted to people that they are uh, involved with emotionally? But I think what they mean by demisexual is someone who has zero sexual attraction to someone at first, and only after bonding with that person for however much time it takes 
then they may or may not have sexual attraction to that person. So this is what they call demisexual. Um, so there's that term. But again, in the literature, it's pretty gray in terms of what exactly constitutes a demisexual. So, But just know that there is a term like that. Also, there is terms called gray sexual or gray asexual. This is someone who identifies with the area between asexuality and allosexuality. They might experience sexual attraction in super rare situations, or they might sort of like sex, but they know that their libido is much less than other people. And so they say, well, I'm not entirely asexual. And so the terminology that has emerged is they call themselves gray sexual because they're in that gray zone. And as I've been talking about, allosexual is someone who experiences sexual attraction and does want to have sex with other people. Sometimes in literature, they just refer to these people as sexual, but it's uh, a little problematic to say, you know, you have sexual people and you have asexual people because it's hard to know exactly what we're talking about. And so the term allosexual, I think, is is more specific. It's similar to the way when we have trans people or non-binary gender people, we have that term. And then you're like, well, what do you call people who identify with the gender they were born with? And we call that cisgender, right? So it's it's good to have very specific terms for these kinds of things. Plus, it doesn't propose a normalcy and then an abnormal, right? So when we use sexual and asexual, it sort of implies that sexual is the normal and asexual is the abnormal. Whereas if you have allosexual and asexual, then it's like both of these terms are referring to, we're just calling two different groups, two different names. Okay. Another term used in the asexual community is ace, A-C-E, like, you know, uh, ace of clubs is this is an informal label used for asexuals and, and all the various different kinds. So you have demisexuals and graysexuals and asexuals who masturbate and asexuals who don't and asexuals who hate sex and asexuals who are, you know, they're, they're okay with other people having sex. So they call this you know, the ace people or ace community. There's also aromanticism, as I've been talking about, people who are aromantic. This is someone who doesn't want to have a romantic relationship with other people. Now, aromantic people may be asexual and they may not be, but there is uh, some correlation. So if you're asexual, you're more likely also to be aromantic. Uh, Bogart in 20 uh, or 2004 found among a group of asexual people that 67% of the asexual people were not in long-term relationships at the time. So that's interesting, right? You know, among the general population, I don't know what the percentage is, but uh, you know, I'm guessing it's, it's a lower percentage. Now, this could be for a lot of different reasons in terms of uh, why aromanticism is associated with asexuality. I would think that uh, there's a number of different possibilities. Like, say you're born asexual and you just have no sexual attraction for other, for other people. Well, romance kind of does involve some sexuality. It's a factor, right? When you have lust for someone, it, it increases your potential for romantic feelings, I think, anyway, in terms of what 
people experience and tell me about. And so perhaps when you lack a sexual attraction to other people, it makes rom- romantic gestures or romantic interest a little bit less likely. And maybe the reverse. Let's say you have very you have let's say you have no romantic interest in other people, uh, but you're capable of having sexual attraction to other people. But you're just kind of like, eh, you know, I, I'm not really interested in bonding with other people romantically. So what's what's the point in having sex with other people? I'll just I'll just I'll just avoid the whole thing. And then there's another term here called autocorosexual. Autocorosexual. It's a subset of asexuality that's discussed in the, in the literature. It was coined by Anthony Bogert, who was a major researcher in asexuality going back to the early 2000s. And it, autocorosexual is derived from autocorus, which is identityless sexuality. So it's sexuality that doesn't involve an identity. People in this subset of asexual people, they like to fantasize about others and masturbate, but they are neutral or repulsed by the idea of having sex with other people. They, you know, the, the thing that I like to say is like, okay, imagine for yourself, let's say you're an allosexual person. Think about all the different sexual fantasies you've engaged in in your life. Well, if you're like most people, some of your fantasies, you do not have an interest in actually carrying through in the, in the real, real world. Not because you worry about social stigma, because, but because you just know that if you really did it, you would not actually like it. You, you'd just be like, no, that just sounds awful if I was in real life. But in my head, man, does it get me going? Well, that's a similar analogy-wise thing to asexual people who fantasize about sex uh, but don't actually want to have sex with other people. So it's just another way of looking at it. Some asexuals masturbate for reasons other than sexual attraction, for example. That's a, this is an important thing. Um, like uh, one, participate, one participant in one study said that they masturbate to clean out the plumbing. <laughs> you know, they're just like, look, you know, every once in a while you got to clean out the plumbing. So that's one reason why some asexuals will masturbate. Also, they might masturbate because they want to relax. So so for some asexual people, when they masturbate, it might have nothing to do with even what we might term as anything close to allosexuality, right? It might just be like something like, like when you're rubbing your feet, for example, you know, you're just doing it for relaxation or you're getting a back massage or you're giving yourself a back massage. You're just like, yeah, I like to do this. This makes me feel good. You, but you wouldn't say it's a sexual thing, right? You're, you're just doing it to relax yourself. Research has found that asexuals uh, who report having sexual fantasies, 11% of, 11% of them reported that their fantasies did not depict any human persons whereas only 0.5% of those in age-matched sexual comparison group. So in other words, when they poll, so this is a study by Yule et al. 2014, when you ask allosexual people, okay, how many, you know, when you engage in sexual fantasies, uh, do, how many of you do not think about other human people? You know, your fantasies don't involve actual other humans. Only 0.5% of allosexual people says, oh, that's me. So very few allosexual people will say, I fan- when I fantasize, I don't fantasize about human beings. 
Whereas 11% of asexual people says, oh yeah, my fantasies don't depict other human people. What this also says is 89% of, of asexual people do fantasize about other people, but there's an increase in the rate of people fantasizing about just general things. You know, maybe, maybe they're fantasizing about themselves masturbating, you know, in, you know, by themselves or something, or, or they don't think about anything sexual at all. Maybe they're just like, they just think about something completely different, like a nice meadow or traveling into space or something. Anyway, some researchers, some researchers assert that some autocorosexuals are only attracted to their own bodies. So this is actually kind of interesting. And I, I imagine that this would be a subset of asexual people who masturbate, but it's, it's worth noting that they have a different way of uh, dealing or their sexuality is, has, has different targets. So there's, there's two different uh, types of people in this category. So you have some people who are their, their sexual target. So, so I'm sorry to explain, but for heterosexual people, if you just, you know, boil it down to a very simple statement, you would say their sexual target are people of the opposite gender, right? For gay and lesbian people, you would say in a very simple statement, their sexual target are people of the same gender, right? For bisexual people, they their sexual target is people of either gender. Now, of course, they're not a, they're not attracted to everyone, uh, heterosexual and otherwise. But you know, I hope you get what I'm saying. For for some asexual people, their sexual target is not other people at all, but it's themselves. So when they masturbate, it it's like they're having sex with someone, but it's themselves. Now, that's not to say that they're delusional and they believe that their genitals are on a different person's body, but they they just have a tremendous amount of sexual attraction to themselves. And that's why they uh, have no sexual attraction to other people. And it kind of makes sense, right? It's like, well, why not? You know, if if some people are attracted to other people, why can't some people be attracted to only themselves? Uh, another uh, form of autochorosexual person is when they're masturbating, they fantasize about sex that doesn't involve themselves at all. So a lot of uh, people, when they masturbate and fantasize, they sort of insert themselves into a situation, right? So if you're a gay person, gay male, and you're watching gay porn, for example, you might insert yourself in either as a third person having sex with the couple, or maybe you, you, one of the people that you're watching having sex, you're, you, you're a stand in for that person, you know, you're, you're, you're do, you know, you're imagining that you're the one doing that to the other person. Well, for some asexuals who masturbate or people that uh, some people in literature are calling autochorosexuals, they are attracted uh, when they're, when they're experiencing sexual arousal and they're fantasizing or watching porn, they actually have no desire to themselves be in that scenario. They like watching sex or they like fantasizing about other people having sex, but there's no personalization involved in that. So that's another interesting thing about our psychologies, right? You wouldn't, or at least I didn't before look, doing a deep dive on this, think about that sort of distinction, right? Um, now, having said that, 
that factor might result in a higher rate of asexuality, but you could actually be allosexual and have that as well, if that makes any sense. One person uh, talked about this on the uh, on a website. They said, quote, I almost invariably think of fictional characters. My thoughts have never involved people I know, and they and they have never involved myself. So I just read this one again. I almost invari- when they're masturbating and fantasizing. I almost invariably think about fictional characters. My thoughts have never involved people I knew, and they have never involved myself. So it's just interesting to, to look at that. Okay. So now let's look at prevalence around the world. And, and you know, I, I already talked about how about 1% of people identify as asexual. But let's look at this a little bit more finely. Kinsey et al., again, the famous Kinsey reports from uh, the 40s and 50s about sexuality in, in the United States, they defined asexuality as behaviorally, meaning that um, it's just whether or not someone has sex or not, and they didn't identify it as something that had to do with internal desire. And they found that about 2% of men were asexual, regardless of whether or not they were married or not. And they found that among married women, about 2% of the married women did not have sex. But again, the Kinsey people, they didn't ask these women, well, do you want to have sex or are you just not having sex even though you want to? But they also found that for unmarried women, about 17% of them were not having sex. So it's just a little detail there. So, But erase those figures from your mind because it, it, it's just a behavioral observation, not a uh, actual measure of asexuality as we're defining it today, which is the internal desire to have sex with the people and the internal sexual attraction to others. Okay, so let's look at prevalence around the world. There's not a lot of research on this, and the research that has been done is actually small in sample, so just take that with a grain of salt. I'm sure in 20 years we'll have a much more, uh, you know, higher resolution understanding of this. Plus, it's it's hard to nail down because not everyone knows what the label means yet, and so a lot of research looking at prevalence you can't just ask people if they identify as asexual because they might not even know what that means. So so a lot of surveys, they actually have to define it and explain it to people. And and as I've been talking about, asexuality is a pretty complex thing, right? So some people might have a little bit of attraction to other people and still identify as asexual, whereas other people might be like, well, I know that person identifies as asexual, but for me... I just think of myself as having a low libido, but I, I don't consider myself asexual. So there's a lot of different variables, so it's, it's just hard to nail down. And I'm guessing in 20 years, 30 years, there'll be a much greater understanding of asexuality in our society, and there'll be a much uh, greater ability just to ask people, you know, how do you identify? It's sort of like how there, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you asked people, do you identify as queer or non-binary or trans? You'd get a lot of people being like, huh, no, I don't even know what these things are. And even if you described it to them, a lot of people would be like, mm, no, not really. Whereas today, there's a fair amount of people who very quickly in the United States will say, oh yeah, I'm trans or I'm non-binary or I'm gender queer or you know, I'm gender fluid or whatever. And 
That's because our society is helping people to put words to these things, and they they are given a chance in some circles to explore that and find their identity. And so right now with asexuality, we're sort of in the dark ages, and so it's just hard to know how many people, if given a chance, would really identify with this. So, you know, also because of stigma, some people might not want to answer honestly due to stigma. But in general, what it's looking like is the following. A study in Britain found that about 1% of people are asexual. A study, another study in New Zealand found that about 2% of the population are asexual. Another study in Finland found that about 2% of men and about 3% of women are asexual. So we're looking like about 1% to 3%-ish in that, in that zone. In the United States, again, about 1% similar to Britain identify as asexual. But again, it depends on the definition and the study, and so it can be lower or higher than that, depending on how we identify that sort of thing. So just to put this in perspective, it's like, well, how many people identify as LGBT, right? And in the United States, about 4% of people identify as LGBT, according to some studies. But other studies look at it and say like, well, 20% identify as LGBT or asexual or non-cisgender. So there's, again, depending on the study, depending on the questions we ask, there's somewhere between 4 to 12% of people who don't identify as cis-hetero. About 2% in the United States currently identify as gay or lesbian, and about 3% identify as bisexual. And the cities with the most LGB, uh, the, you know, the most lesbian, gay, bisexual communities are, take a guess, top five cities in the United States, top five cities. Most people would say, of course, San Francisco, has a very high percentage of lesbians, gays, and bisexual people with 15%. And Seattle is number two at 13%. Atlanta, Minneapolis are also tied at 13%. And number five is Boston. I would have thought New York or LA would have been in there, but I think it's because New York and LA just have so many people that their gay communities are pretty large. But uh, in terms of percentage overall, uh, per capita, they aren't that high. What about gender? Well, when it comes to gender, women are slightly more likely to identify as being asexual with about, I don't know, between the, diff- I mean, there's a lot of different studies finding different figures, but a rough estimate would be about two thirds of asexual people are identified as cisgender women. So, you know, just something interesting to look at. What about age? Some might think, oh, you know, wouldn't most asexual people be young? Well, according to the research, there's really no difference by age. Again, we're at a time where older people are going to be less likely to know what the word means. And so there's just a lot of, you know, kind of problems with trying to look at this currently. But according to initial research in the past 15 years, there doesn't seem to be any difference in age, which really debunks the myth that asexuality is a phase that young people go through. There's a myth out there. It's like, oh, well, you know, you're only 22 and you're asexual. Well, surely, you know, you'll have a satisfying relationship and you'll realize that you're actually not asexual anymore. And that's a very demeaning way of looking at it. It would be very similar to saying, 
oh, sure, you're gay because you're in college and you're experimenting. But, you know, once you get your life on track, you'll, you'll be heterosexual. It's the same thing. Now, might it happen to somebody? Might an asexual person uh, later change their mind or uh, change their biology or change their psychology or, you know, whatever we want to say, change their lifestyle, as other people might say? Sure, that might happen in the same way that some people change from heterosexual to gay or lesbian or bisexual or back. You know, there's there's lots of fluidity there for, for some people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to characterize asexuality as a youthful thing is really just not uh, accurate given the reality. What about relationship status? Well, about 90% of asexual people identify as being single. So, um, and, and when we look at gender, uh, that's mostly men. So 92% of men, asexual men identify as single and about 80% of women who are asexual identify as being single. So, but in general, just looking at, again, this, this statistic, the vast majority of asexual people are currently single. Now, what does this mean? Well, it could mean that Asexual, asexual people are just not really interested in, in relationships that much, that much. And they're much more interested in friendships and family and all that kind of stuff. It could also be that asexual people have such a hard time finding other asexual people to be with that they just give up on relationships. Or their relationships that they've been in are so distasteful and horrible because of this difference in sexuality that they just get turned off from relationships. So it could be either. You could be just out of the, you know, because they're not interested in, in romantic relationships or partnerships, or it could be because it circumstances are making it so that it's really hard for them to have a relationship. Okay, let's go into some other statistics here based on studies by Bogart 20 or 2004, Prowse and Graham 2007, and, and other studies looked at trying to measure some numerical differences between asexual and allosexual people. And again, these are pretty small studies and preliminary studies, so it's hard to say, but just to report on their findings. They found that asexual people are older at first intercourse. So when they asked them, how old were you when you first had sex? And what they find is that for asexual people, the average age was 17 years old, and for asexual people, the average age was 15. So there's a full two-year average dis difference between mean age of having sex for the first time, which makes sense, right? Also, asexual people have lower frequency of sexual activity. So when asked, you know, how many times have you had sex in the last seven days? For asexual people, the average was 0.2 times in the, in the past seven days. And for allosexual people, the average was 1.2 times. About lifetime sexual partners, they when they asked asexual people and allosexual people, how many sexual partners have you had in your entire life? And what they found was that for asexual people, it was about 10. And for allosexual people, it was about 12. So this is actually pretty interesting. So it's not that much difference, right? You have, uh, you would think that asexual people would be like, oh, I don't know, two, one person. But the average asexual person in, in this study anyway had 10 sexual partners in the past. Again, small sample size, 
uh, I think this the, this particular study was in Britain 15 years ago, so maybe the figures will be different. Um, I'm sure the figures would be different if we looked at other places, but I don't know, just sort of interesting to look at. Also, among cis women or people who have um, uh, periods, I should say, they have asexual people have a later onset of having their first period. For example, or more specifically, the mean age for asexual people to have their first period was age 14, as opposed to allosexual people, their uh, average was 13. So a full year difference. And this gets into ideas. Uh, so that's a biological thing, right? I mean, for the most part, it's also environmental, but it is, you know, it's it's not just an internal psychological experience, right? The the first time you have your period. So there are some people who propose that there is a biological difference between asexual people and allosexual people. And I'll get more into that later. So let's look at the research regarding discrimination against asexual people. Research has looked into this. Shearer in 2008 found that there is evidence that asexual people suffer similar mistreatment as other LGBTQ folks. Another study, McInnes and Hodgson in 2012, found evidence that heterosexual people often view asexual people with more disfavor than other sexual minorities, and they sometimes characterize asexual people as less than human. So this is something I haven't really gone into yet in terms of the stigma and discrimination that to some people, the notion that you would have someone who has no sexual attraction to other people is not only just politically problematic to some people, but it's so it, it's it's such a part of our narrative of what makes us human that for some people they're just like, oh my God, they have no sexual attraction to other people. They're like a robot or they're like... I don't know, a bacteria or something. There's something deeply wrong with that person, and they become very distrustful of those people and therefore discriminate against them. And this study by McInnes and Hodgson, 2012, found that, that heterosexual people are so threatened by asexual people that they dislike asexual people even more than they dislike gays and lesbians and trans people. So that, that's an interesting finding. Because on one hand, you'd be like, well, why would you have a problem with asexual people? Because, you know, there's nothing in the Bible, or at least I don't think there is, that like says, you know, um, people who don't have sex are going to go to hell or something. Maybe there is. I don't know. But that doesn't seem to be something that, that jumps into my head as, as something that would be moralistic. In fact, some Christians might be like, oh, yeah, you're abstaining. You know, what a great thing that you're doing. I don't know. Anyway, my point is, is that intuitively, I wouldn't have thought that people would have a bigger problem with asexual people. Because when heterosexual people who aren't woke look at LGBTQ people, they're, they, they, have, they, have to, in, they frequently try to envision the sexual act in their head. And if they're not used to it, it's very distressing to them. You know, it's like, what, you mean two men with two penises? Like, how does that work? And it's very upsetting to them. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why they get all up in arms. Well, another, but when we think about asexuality, it's like, you ask that same person, it's like, well, this person's asexual. Well, to them, they don't have to envision anything in their head, because all they do is like, well, okay, they just watch TV a lot. I don't know. And that, in my head, intuitively, I was like, well, so asexuals are probably going to have a little easier time with this. But according to the research, they actually don't. 
uh, because there's these notions in our society that if you don't have sexual attraction to other people, then you're not a real human being. Also, societies have institutionalized um, phobia against asexuals and discrimination against asexuals. I wonder what term people are coming up with, like um, asexual phobia, I guess maybe would be asex phobia. Anyway, many societies have institutionalized asexual phobia. um, And for example... Married people often have additional rights and benefits over single people or people in non-sexual relationships. So, you know, if you are asexual, and particularly if you're asexual and aromantic, then in all likelihood, you're going to be single, right? Well, in our society, married people have a lot of benefits that, that single people don't. And that is just so silly to me. There's so many things wrong with that. Okay, so let's go into the DSM. I haven't talked anything about the DSM yet because I don't care for the way that they talk about it, but there is talk in the DSM about things related to asexuality. So let's get into it. So in DSM-5, we have two labels that are used that are associated with asexuality. And these two disorders are called in the literature hypoactive sexual desire disorders. Hypo meaning, you know, below active, so below active sexual desire disorders. Again, there are two of these disorders discussed in the DSM-5. Some say these disorders are real, and some say that they are not real, and that that they just pathologize low sexual desire. But let's let's look at what the DSM-5 talks about. The first one to talk about is called female sexual interest and arousal disorder. Female sexual interest slash arousal disorder. So for this, you have to experience a lack of sexual interest or and or a lack of sexual arousal. So I hope people understand the difference between interest and arousal, right? Interest is something you ask someone about. Are you interested in having sex? And they're like, eh. And the other one is, is arousal. Like you might kind of be interested in having sex, but you have no arousal, meaning you don't get wet or boners or all the other associated biological arousal, you know, getting worked up, your heart rate going, all the, you know, your full body arousal experience. Some people don't have that. And so DSM is trying to look at that. And for female sexual interest arousal disorder, you need to have at least three of these things related to a lack of sexual interest. One is having little interest in sex. So pretty obvious there. Number two is doesn't fantasize about sex. Number three is unreceptive to sex. This is a problematic one, right? (laughs) What if you don't like your sexual partner? Wouldn't that make you unreceptive? Um, Number four is doesn't get pleasure during sex. Number five is doesn't feel much physically during sex. So, and there's, there's a couple more there, but it's a little silly to go into them. Anyway, you need, you need to have three of those. So if you don't fantasize about sex and you're unreceptive to sex and you don't get pleasure from sex and you lack sexual interest and you've had this experience for at least six months and it causes you clinical, clinical, clinically significant distress and it's not caused by a different disorder or relationship problems or a stressor or substance abuse then you qualify for female sexual interest arousal disorder. Oh, and you have to be female, obviously, too, right? 
So um, in the DSM, they mentioned that culture may play a role, meaning that um, for some people, it's it's more common in other areas. Like they, they specifically say female sexual interest disorder is more common for East Asia women than in the West. So the, the first thing I'll say to this is that as with a lot of these types of disorders in the DSM, it's highly subjective and it doesn't discuss it far enough because again, I mean, they, they do have this clause here. that's like, well, in order to qualify for this, you, your lack of sexual interest cannot be due to a different disorder. Like it can't be due to anxiety or depression or medication or PTSD or something. Also, your lack of sexual interest can't be related to a relationship problem. You know, it has to be independent from your relationship or a stressor or substance abuse. So, I, you know, they include those things, which is great. Um, the other thing is, is they say it has to cause clinically significant distress, which I'll get into more in, in a little bit, because that's that's a key thing, right? Because for, for some asexual people, they, they might just be like, yeah, I don't have any sexual interest, but and I don't care. You know, it's I don't. It's not a it's not a big deal to me. I you know I'm fine with the fact that I don't. Whereas other people might be like, oh my god, this is such a problem. You know, how come I don't have sexual interest in other people? But that's a subtle thing, right? Like which we'll get into in a second. But the the main question I have about the the stupid DSM is why are the females separated from the males? It's just such a weird thing, right? And uh, yeah. So number two, the second. Uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder in the DSM is called male hypoactive sexual dysfunction. So, so let's get into this. Like, well, okay, if they broke, if the DSM broke it out as male and female, obviously it must be like this really different condition, right? Because they wouldn't, why wouldn't they just come, you know, you don't have male depression and female depression in the DSM because men and women experience depression basically in the same way. I mean, there's gender, gender is always a factor, but but it's not it's not clinically interesting to separate female and male depression or female and male schizophrenia. So there must be a reason as to why the DSM is breaking out hypoactive sexual desire disorders into male and female, and they're even calling them different things because we you know remember the female one's called female sexual interest slash arousal disorder, and then for male it's called male hypoactive sexual dysfunction. So it's like well okay so clearly. If you're using different words, it must mean something different. So let's look at it. So basically, the criteria for the male version is pretty much the same. It's worded differently. But when you look at it, in essence, it's exactly the same thing. And so let me just break it down. So the male hypoactive sexual dysfunction is defined as having less sexual interest, less uh, a lack of sexual fantasies, and a lack of desire of sexual activity, lasting for at least six months, causing clinically significant distress, and not caused by a different disorder, relationship problems, stressor, or substance abuse. Does this sound familiar to you? Sure does to me. Sounds exactly like the female version. So what the hell, DSM people? I mean, come on. Now, they will say in the male version, they, they do talk about that the judgment of deficiency, so the deficiency of lack of sexual desire, the judgment of deficiency is made by the clinician, taking into account factors that affect sexual functioning, such as age and general sociocultural context in the individual's life. 
So this is an interesting statement. And it's just one sentence. And you wish the DSM would elaborate on it. And maybe the DSM is like, look, that's not our place. That's for other literature to tackle these things. And fine. But, but they did mention it, which is good. But I'm confused as to what they mean by it. Because it could mean a lot of different things. Because if we just look at this, right, you know, at the first sentence or the first bit of it, it says, the judgment of deficiency... So again, the judgment of sexual interest deficiency is made by the clinician. So this one phrase makes it look like it's a top-down evaluation, right? Where the clinician is saying to someone, you have male hypoactive sexual dysfunction. Rather than asking the person, do you care or do you identify as having a sexual dysfunction or would you rather identify as being asexual, right? So that part of it doesn't sound so great. But then the rest of it, is I can get on board with. Taking into account factors that affect sexual functioning, such as age and general sociocultural context in the, of the individual's life. So if you are 95 years old and you have very little sexual interest, then maybe we take that into account and say like, well, you know, it's not uncommon for 95-year-old people to not be interested in sex anymore. Now, there's plenty of 95-year-olds who are super interested in sex. So, you know, that's something to think about. But, you know, if you're 95 and you've already suffered a lot of different surgeries and different, you know, you've had a couple strokes and your spouse died 20 years ago and, you know, you haven't had uh, an erection in 20 years or something, it's not you know, unusual to be like, eh, sex, not a big deal. Now, having said that, like I said, plenty of 95-year-olds, super into sex, but, you know, so they take age into account and also sociocultural context of the individual's life. So if you lost your job and you're being marginalized and you're in an abusive relationship and all these kinds of things, then take that into account. You know, if they lack sexual interest for the for more than six months and it's causing them to stress, you know, maybe we don't, pathologize that, maybe we look at that as something that's contextual. Now, with some people that love the DSM, they'll say, look, just because we have a label in the DSM doesn't mean that we're pathologizing it, so to speak. It could just mean that we're providing a label for some people's experience so that we can focus on it clinically. And I can get behind that for the most part, but there's a lot of things that are not in the DSM that we all target clinically. If someone has attachment insecurity, we all know we're supposed to, you know, address that. That's not in the DSM. There's there's a lot of things that are, you know, if someone has a conflict in their marriage and they're having trouble communicating, we focus on that. That's not in the DSM. We don't have to have every goddamn thing in the DSM. You know, we can we don't have to do that. And I I, th I think that this is probably one of those things. But anyway. So again, why is it gendered? You know, why do we have a male version and a female version? And why is it called something different? I mean, again, the female one is called female sexual interest slash arousal disorder. And the male one is called male hypoactive sexual dysfunction. And I don't want to, you know, I hate, I hate it when people read too much into things. But if I was to do that with this, if we just look at the female label in the DSM, female sexual interest disorder and female interest arousal disorder. So it's like, if she's not interested in sex, it's a disorder, right? An interest disorder. And so, you know, we got to get her to want sex, okay? This is me looking on the, in the dark side of this. Whereas the male, hypoactive sexual dysfunction, 
you know, it's like, well, surely men are interested in having sex. So it's, there's, there's some sort of dysfunction happening that's making it so that, you know, because erectile dysfunction, you know, the word dysfunction feels more male sexual problemy, right? And sexual interest disorder sounds more female-like in our society. But again, I see absolutely, and, and you DSM people, tell me the difference between these two disorders in the DSM. They are definitely worded differently, and you, you could point to some differences, but the, the, just behind the wording is a very clear, uh, identical set of criteria, you know? Lack of sexual interest, lack of sexual fantasies, lack of desire to have sex, six months, distress, um, and not caused by some other thing. So, yeah. Now, having said all that, I hope that I can say this very clearly. There are many people who I think would absolutely qualify for these disorders and would be helped by it. For example, take someone who... Uh, is uh, they grow up, they like to masturbate, they like to have sex occasionally, and then, you know, they get married and they find that their libido is, you know, dropping and dropping and dropping. And it's not due to a medication. It's not due to taking the pill. Their relationship is going, you know, relatively well. It's not perfect. No marriage is. But, you know, things are going relatively well in their life, and they've just slowly lost interest in sex. And they're very upset by it. You know, they're like, how come I, I used to like sex? I used to, I used to want to have sex. And now, man, I have no interest in having sex. And when you talk with them, you're like, well, there's this thing called asexuality. And it's where people identify as asexual, and they say, you know what? I'm not interested in sex, and I'm cool with it. How does that feel to you? And they mull that over for a couple months, maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple days. And they say, no, I'm not asexual. I don't want to live like that. I'm a sexual person. I, I identify as an allosexual person. I like, I want to want to have sex, you know, and I, I, need, I want answers. I want to figure out why I no longer want to have sex. You know, please help me. I'm, I'm in a lot of distress about this. My marriage is falling apart. And I agree with my partner that we should be having sex. And, I, you know, there's got to be an answer. Maybe sex therapy or maybe something's happening in my head or maybe I need to recover from trauma or something. And, you know, what's happening to me right now? So in that case, then I say, fine, let's use a DSM label. I still don't think we need it, honestly. But, you know, fine, particularly if insurance companies are going to pay for it, then, you know, all the better. So those are people that legitimately, in my mind, have justification for us using labels of hypoactive sexual desire disorders in the DSM. Now, I don't know why we have to gender them as male or female. Plus, like, what about trans people? We don't have, you know, at, at current situation, trans people have no hypoactive sexual desire disorder in the DSM. We, ha we have to put, if we're going to label you, we got to call you female or male, which, you know, I, they wrote the DSM-5 in 2013. It's not like trans issues were unknown to these people. Uh, why wouldn't you just combine these two? I don't understand. Uh, the DSM authors have some of the most backward thinking. It's just mind boggling. Okay. So when we look at these hypoactive sexual desire disorders in the DSM, the key 
to these, in my opinion, is this idea of distress. So how do we define distress, right? So we've talked about this before in other situations with paraphilias and these kinds of things. Now, if you are asexual or say, say you've never had a sexual attraction to other people, well, you're going to experience distress because one, you're going to feel different than other people in the world. You're going to be like, man, there's something different about me. And I don't feel like there's room in the world for who I am. You might even reach out to people and they might be like, oh man, what's wrong with you? They might stigmatize you. You might be ostracized or humiliated in certain ways. And you might feel like you don't like a lot of movies or TV shows or something because everything centers around sex. And so, yeah, you're going to experience a lot of distress by the fact that you don't have any sexual interest in other human beings. But whose fault is that? It's our fault. It's society's fault. It's not the individual's fault. It's our stupid society's fault, right? The fact that a gay person, for example, experiences distress because they're gay is not because it's inherent in the experience of being gay. It's inherent in the experience of our society, right? So, but when we're looking in the DSM, uh, for the vast majority, if not all labels, there has to be what they call clinically significant distress. So, for example, you could be depressed, but if you aren't experiencing clinically significant distress, then it doesn't rise to the level as, as uh, something we would apply the label in the DSM. So when someone lacks sexual desire and they don't have any fantasies and they don't have a desire to have sex with other people, well, and they have it and they have distress about it. So, so there's a number, so there's three different uh, options, three different possibilities. One is that someone comes to your office and says, I have no sexual interest. I have, I, I have no sexual desire to have sex with other people. And I don't fantasize about sex about other people. And you know what? I'm totally cool with it. I have no distress. In that situation, I hope that people looking at the DSM would be like, oh, okay, well, then they don't qualify for these labels. And in fact, there is literature and you know the societal uh, notion of called asexuality. And you'd say, you sound like someone who's asexual because you lack sexual interest in other people and you're cool with it. So there's a label for that. It's called asexuality. How do you feel about that? So you explore it. The second possibility is they come in and they say, I lack sexual interest in other people and I have tremendous distress about it. Okay, now in this situation, you have to determine, is that distress because of society or is that distress because of an internal sense of distress? Now, I'll get into more of this later, but this requires a fair amount of exploration. And you can't know just by a short conversation with someone because have they, in, you know, for example, just going to the, to the gay analogy, someone comes to your office and they're like, I'm a, you know, I'm a man and I'm attracted to other men and I have tremendous distress about it. Now, if you said to them, well, where does the distress come from? Does it come from society or does it come from you? And they're like, well, it comes from me. And you're like, well, what do you mean? Why are you, dis- why are you distressed about being gay or having, you know, being attracted to men? And he might say like, well, because it's disgusting. Being gay is gross and it, I'm going to go to hell. I'm, I'm extremely distressed about this. Well, you know, most of us would say that is internalized homophobia. And let's address that and your distress will go away. And you can be gay, you know, it's much more complicated than that. But you know, that's a, it's not a bad simplification of it. 
So when someone comes to your office and says, I, I have no sexual attraction to other people, and I have tremendous distress about it. And you're like, well, why do you have distress about it? And they're like, well, because it's unnatural. It's terrible. You know, human beings are supposed to have sex with other people. It's not normal. And even after you explain asexuality to them, and they're like, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, I, not being attracted to other people is terrible. And I'm getting a ton of grief from my spouse and my parents want me to have more kids. And, you know, I, I just I just don't know what to do. I'm in so much distress. Well, is this society? Is it is it internalized phobia against asexuals? That's a very difficult thing to tease out. And, and in my opinion, requires a tremendous amount of exploration, which could take actually a long time. I mean, I've gone down that road with people before for a lot of issues related to sex, because we've been so programmed from such an early age to believe certain things. And it takes a long time for people to suss through that, particularly if you weren't raised very well to begin with, and you have a hard time with your sense of self anyway. And so, so, but having said that, I would say, uh, contrary to being gay, there are some people who lack sexual desire, whom I believe after, you know, fully exploring it, uh, I'm confident in the client's ability to evaluate for themselves that, no, my distress is not internalized phobia against asexuality. It is a genuine distress that I feel that is a result of my true identity, quote unquote, uh, uh, not being able to shine through my situation. <laughs> I, I have, I'm a truly allosexual person and deep down, and I need you to help me to help that emerge. Now, again, that's not analogous to gay people because you wouldn't have a gay person say, I have a, deep down, I have a, I'm a heterosexual person and I need that to emerge. Now, you see the rub there when it comes to asexuality, right? It's, since asexuality is a sexual orientation, uh, should we be discouraging people f who exhibit asexuality from, you know, framing themselves as, deep down and allosexual, right? It's a, you know, it's an interesting conversation. To me, as a clinician, I just explore it with people. And I just keep exploring and I let them do whatever they want. And wherever they go, that's where they go. And I just try to remain as open as possible. So that's a key uh, bit of understanding when we come to DSM-5, because both, you know, the male and the female version of the hypoactive sexual desire disorders have a major clause in there that says causes clinically significant distress. So, you know, because for some people who lack sexual desire, they have no distress about it, so they're cool. And actually, when we look at empirical observation of asexual people through a number of studies, uh, two by Brado and colleagues, 2010, and Brado, Ewell, and Gorzalka, 2015, they found the following things. For example, they found that only 10% of asexual participants indicated experiencing distress. So 90% of people who identify as asexual will say, I have zero distress about the fact that I'm asexual. I'm totally cool with it. Uh, another study found that individuals classified as asexual report much less distress than people who meet criteria for a hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So that's just something to keep in mind. Researchers have asked asexual people how they feel about these diagnoses being included in the, in the DSM-5. They said, like, you know, so 
there's these labels in the DSM-5 that pathologize people who lack sexual desire. Let me ex- explain how they work and how do you feel about it. And surprisingly, according to this one study, that they found that the asexual participants said that they actually liked the labels in the DSM and they support clinicians and their efforts to develop treatments for them. So I'm guessing that they saw these labels as not encompassing them. You know, they're like, well, yeah, I mean, if someone has distress about the fact that they lack sexual desire, then I suppose they should get a label and they should get treatment for that label. So, um, you know, they're fine with that. So they're, it's, it seems that asexual people, in the, at least in this one study, they're just like, look, I'm totally confident in the fact that I'm, I don't have a pathology, but I could see some people being labeled as having a pathology because they're really upset about the fact that they lack sexual desire. But for me, I've, I've always been cool with the fact that I don't have any sexual desire. But these people in this study, they did want a greater emphasis in the DSM on distress being explained in more detail because it can come from society or from spouses or other people. So they're like, that distress clause in the DSM needs to be explained more fully so that clinicians don't mistake stress from society or stress from spouses as distress that should be considered uh, relevant. And they also advocate the DSM have a clause specifying that the diagnosis applies only to people who do not consider themselves asexual. So this is, this is interesting, right? That they're like, look, that's fine if you want these labels to be the DSM. But there should be some clause in there that says that if the person identifies as asexual, they cannot qualify for these labels. Because if they identify as asexual, by definition they are, uh, they're okay. They've wrestled with it uh, sufficiently and they're, they're okay with the fact that they lack sexual desire. And this is interesting because what this would mean was that say a client came to you and said, I don't have any sexual desire and I have some distress about that. I have clinically significant distress about that. I'm kind of upset and I, I, you know, I, I don't know what to do about it, but I just want you to know, I identify as asexual. In that instance, according to this recommendation from these asexual people, they don't qualify for one of those disorders in the DSM. And I think that that's, I think that's right. I think it should be that way. So it doesn't take away the fact that they lack sexual desire, and it doesn't take away the, the fact that they are reporting they have distress about that. But what it does is it says, um, we can't pathologize someone who identifies as that thing. Do you know what I mean? Anyway. Okay, so let's look at some correlates. Okay, we're, we're about two-thirds of the way through, and we're at the two-hour mark, so it looks like maybe about another hour. About another hour. Okay, so let's look at what things correlate with asexuality. Well, a lot of researchers have looked into biological correlates. So they look for, you know, what's different biologically about asexual people. Now, what I will say from the onset is that the research has found some things but they're not very strong signals in the data. Uh, it'd sort of be like saying, um, you know, assertive people tend to be taller, for example. I don't know if that's a thing, but let's say that that was a finding. Well, we wouldn't say like, well, if you're short, you're definitely not going to be assertive, right? And you also wouldn't say that being tall makes you assertive, right? You would just say like, 
well, maybe, you know, when you involve all the different factors, maybe being tall might just slightly increase your chance of being assertive according to this assertive scale or something. So just keep in mind that notion of statistics as we go through this. But overall, the research when they look at biological correlates similar to being gay or lesbian or bisexual, they're often looking at atypical prenatal environments. So you have what they call typical prenatal environments for a fetus, and you have atypical. And when you have an atypical prenatal environment, that leads to different anomalies, shall we say, in biology and in psychology. So one of the things that they have found that is associated with asexuality is being left-handed. So this is actually true for other non-heterosexual orientations. So being gay, being bi, being lesbian are all associated with being left-handed, and so is asexuality. So the idea goes is that due to some abnormal condition on the fetus, it results in two things. One, left-handedness and in not being heterosexual and not being allosexual. So now, obviously, there are some political problems with that statement, but, you know, that's that's the idea that they're going for here. Uh, number two, another biological correlate is birth order. So this is actually a well-studied area that many of you might know about. The idea goes is, and it's it's just a theory at this point because it's hard to know the answers to this because we can't experiment on humans. But the the theory goes is that as if you're a, a mother and you you have a baby boy, then there are certain biological. I'm not a biologist or a obstetrician, so I don't know the the language, but so I, I'll probably butcher this, but. The idea goes is that when you are a mother, you are a female, and you have a baby growing inside of you. And if that baby is a boy, then the body reacts to it a little bit as if it is a foreign object. Uh, not entirely, obviously, but, but you know, potentially slightly. And so the body, the immune system mistakes the male fetus as something that is a foreign body. And if it's a female fetus, then it's less likely to react to the fetus in that way. And so the uh, mother might develop a immune system to the male fetus. Then with each successive male uh, fetus that the mother has, so say, you know, son number two, son number three, son number four, by the time we get to son number four, the mother's immune system has developed a robust uh, reaction to the XY chromosome in the uh, mother's body. And this can lead to uh, a atypical prenatal environment for that fetus, which can result in being left-handed and also in, in, in being gay and being trans and also in being asexual. So that's one of the theories. Because what they do find is that if you are a, um, if you're with, the more older brothers you have, the more likely you're going to be gay. And also what they find is the more older brothers you have, the more likely you're going to be asexual. So, you know, it's just uh, interesting to look at that. 
Number three is finger length ratio. So this is uh, when if you look at your hand and hold your fingers out straight, if your ring finger is close in length to your pointer finger, then this is associated with asexuality. Again, because there's an atypical prenatal environment, it results in uh, a deviation from the norm in terms of your finger length, and also it leads to a deviation in norm in terms of sexual attraction. Number four is being shorter. Asexual people tend to be shorter, but uh, other studies have found there's no association between height and asexuality. Again, because there's not a lot of great studies out there, and so it's hard to know. Number five is low circulating testosterone. A lot of studies looking at this, meaning that if you have low circulating testosterone, then you're more likely to be asexual. And the idea goes, again, that due to abnormal or atypical prenatal environments, this can result in having a um, atypical testosterone system, which can result in a atypical sexuality, namely being a or atypical sexuality, mean, uh, namely asexuality. But they've done research on rodents and found no difference between non-copulating non rodents and copulating rodents. Again, this is observing rodents uh, from afar, so you can't ask them, are they sexually attracted to other rodents? You, you just have to watch their behavior. So there's a lot of different reasons why a rat will not have sex with anyone else. You know, it can't, it's not, it, it's impossible to know what their inner experience is. But, um, and also these kinds of studies assume that rat studies are applicable to humans, which they often aren't. But anyway, they, there's been other research that's point point that's pointed towards test, testosterone is not necessarily a, a a significant factor in developing asexuality. And number six is elevated physical health issues. There's been a number of studies finding that asexual people tend to have more physical health issues than others. So there's two theories about this, two hypotheses. One is that again, due to an atypical prenatal environment you develop both physical ailments as, as an adult or, you know, a person, a child, you know, as a, as a later, as a post-born person, you develop more physical illnesses and you also develop atypical sexuality, namely asexuality. Another explanation, which seems more intuitive to me, which is that, uh, you know, due to the fact that you have physical health issues, that absolutely can interfere with your desire to have sex with other people, right? So is it the chicken or the egg? Hard to tell, but it is something that is found. So those are the six. You have left-handed uh, birth order for males, meaning you have more older brothers. Finger length ratio being shorter, low circulating testosterone, and elevated physical illness. These are all things that are correlated with asexuality. But much of this research is preliminary, so we could find in 20 years that none of these things matter, or maybe they, there's even a stronger association. But So we just have to take it with a grain of salt. And there are studies that contradict these findings. There's plenty of studies that say finger length ratio has nothing to do with asexuality. Because again, as I was talking about earlier, the definition of asexuality is different depending on who's talking. And you're asking people to tell you about their inner experience. So, you know, it, 
the, the, it requires, it's, you know, when you study how tall someone is, you don't have to ask them about their inner experience. You just measure them from foot to, from foot to their head, right? But when it comes to these kinds of uh, research designs, you have to ask someone, tell me your inner experience, which requires, one, that they know their inner experience, two, that they know what you're asking, and three, that they tell you the truth. And there's, so there's a lot of possibility in there of, of it getting thrown off. Whereas when it comes to how high you are, as an analogy, let's just imagine that we had no ability to measure how tall someone was. And we did a national survey and we just asked people, how tall are you? Well, and the person doesn't know how to measure themselves either. So no one knows how to measure themselves. And the way that we describe how tall we are, we actually have no way of, of measuring inches and feet and everything. We just have to say, well, I'm taller than Brad Pitt, <laughs> or I'm about as tall as a horse or something. So that's essentially where we're at when we're asking about anything psychological. We're asking people, we're calling people on the phone, and without any way of, of measuring you know, length, we're asking people, how tall are you? You know, what's your experience of how tall you are? And they'd be like, well, when I walk through a door, I, I do pretty well and I can reach the top shelf most of the time. And you're like, well, what top shelf? What kind of top shelf? Is your top shelf the same as my top shelf? Well, that's what we're talking about when we're asking people about asexuality. We're like, you know, how sexually attracted are you to other people? And the person would be like, eh, not, I'm not really that sexually attracted to other people. Well, what do we mean by that? You know, is their, is their yardstick the same as, as the researcher's yardstick? These are very difficult things. So, so when we look at correlates like being shorter or finger length ratio, we're looking at things that are mathematically discrete, like finger length ratio and being shorter, and comparing and trying to correlate them with something as squishy as asking people to self-report about their sexual attraction in general to other human beings. And of course, that question doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's a context. There's, you know, all these sorts of things. So anyway, um, plus, uh, like I said, tons of research that totally refute this. You know, you have asexual people who are right-handed. You have asexual people who are firstborn. You have asexual people with a ring finger that's longer than their pointer finger. You have asexual people who are tall. You have asexual people with high or normal testosterone levels, and you have asexual people who don't have any physical problems at all. So it's just important to point out. And honestly, I dislike this emphasis on biology in the literature. Whenever we're discussing sexual orientation, there's a subsection of our field that feels compelled to look at biological correlates. Uh, I mean, there's, there's two reasons why I think people do this. One is that they're trying to pathologize asexuality. They're like, ooh, you know, asexuality is weird. Well, maybe it's because they were born with a disorder, you know? And if I can prove that, that there was something wrong with their bodies, then that's why they're asexual. And of course, that's, that's not cool and I think not relevant to our situation. Plus, even if it were true, you wouldn't be able to demonstrate it given our the lack of our ability to quantify psychology and, and drives and everything. 
The other reason why researchers do this, which I think is more common than, than the first one, is that, that they're trying to depathologize asexuality. And I've talked about this before when it comes to LGBTQ people, that when we look for reasons to say, well, look, this is a biological thing. People are born gay or they're born trans or they're, they're born asexual. I get why we point to that as a way to try to legitimize it. You know, it's like, well, some people are, you know, God made you that way. I get that. But there are problems with that. One is, is that for some people, they will phase in and out of asexuality or being gay for that matter. So that would, you know, mean that, wait, so they're not really asexual. They're not really gay because they only identified as being asexual starting at the age of 45. So they're not really gay or they're not really asexual. Um, so it's problematic in that way. But the other, but the main problematic thing is that when we use bad science to prove a good idea, people who oppose the idea will find it very easy to refute the idea. And the fact is, is we have no way of knowing with our current technologies how people are born with with regards to sexual orientation. We just don't know. And we probably never will know. And once we do know, I'm guessing it will absolutely be a combination between nature and nurture with certain factors being perhaps more strong in others and, and, and less in other people. So this the notion is well refuted, is easily refuted. So if you're trying to depathologize or legitimize asexuality, I say don't pick a line of argument that is easily refuted. Pick a argument that cannot be refuted. For example, the argument that I would say to legitimize asexuality is why the fuck do you care? <laughs> that's my that's my statement, you know. If someone's like, "Hey, asexuality is not really a thing." And what I'd say is it's like, "Well, fuck you." And two, like, "Why do you care?" What why do you care how someone else is, someone else identifies? Why do you care if someone else has or does not have sexual desire or what degree of sexual desire they have or how acceptable it is regarding their sexual desire. What, what's it to you, pal? Why do you have to look at that with anything other than either just neutrality, just be like, well, who cares about that? Or at the very least, just appreciation, like, good for you. Great. I'm glad you've discovered yourself. You know, it's good for you. You know, why would there be any stigma about that? And why would it not be legitimate? In the same way that someone who says they're trans, you know, they're like, you know what, I was born with a penis, but I absolutely identify as female. And what anyone should say that is like, uh, fine, good, great. What can I do to help? You know, what, you know, what do you need? You know, I'm, I'm here to help. There's, uh, there's no reason why you should have any other reaction other than that. Uh, why would you care? You know, when people ridicule, um, who is his name? The Kardashian who came, who's trans, uh, uh, Jenner, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, I believe. Why in the world would anyone look at her and say, what's wrong with her? Or she's not really a woman or, you know, it's like, who cares? Just let it go. You know, it doesn't harm you. Uh, you know, just who cares at the very least who cares and at best, you know, appreciate anyway. So that, that to me is the best argument against 
people who want to delegitimize or pathologize asexuality is just to say, what's it to you, pal? Like, why are you doing this? Also, another thing that we find in the research literature, namely Manning 2002, is that high musical talent is associated with unusual prenatal events. So uh, in other words, you know, when you have a atypical prenatal environment, this is somewhat correlated with having high music ability later in life. But we don't pathologize that, right? We're just like, well, that's a happy accident that a atypical prenatal environment resulted in you being a brilliant p- pianist or a brilliant composer. We don't say, we don't put that in the DSM. We don't say like, oh, that's a pathology, right? So just because something atypical leads to something also atypical doesn't mean that it's pathology, right? So if you have an atypical prenatal environment and it leads to you having an atypical sexuality, like being gay or trans or asexual, that doesn't mean we pathologize it in the same way that we don't pathologize high music ability, right? Also, uh, and I found this in one, I can't remember where I saw this, but I found it to be very compelling, is that sexuality... Allosexuality itself is associated with a lot of bad things in our society and a lot of bad things among individuals, right? Being sexually attracted to other people has a lot of bad side effects. Rape, rape culture, sexual assault, sexual objectification, sexual harassment, you know, Kavanaugh, all these kinds of things. So, and yet we don't pathologize allosexuality, right? We don't say that we need to make everyone asexual, right? So just because there might, and and I can't really think of anything along those lines among asexuality, right? So if anything, society-wise, we should be like, you know what? It'd be a good thing if more of us were asexual (laughs) because there'd be a lower rate of rape, lower rate of assault, lower rape of objectification and harassment. Now, having said that, I, I didn't see any research showing that asexual people are less likely to rape, for example, because I can absolutely see uh, someone who wanted to harm other people and they also happen to be asexual could actually harm other people. So I haven't seen data on that, but I hope you get my point, is that we shouldn't be pathologizing asexuality. That's a very silly notion to do. Having said that, we absolutely can use some of the DSM labels for some people after they have demonstrated to us that they have explored fully the and have told us through a collaborative exploration process that they are not that they don't suffer from internalized asexual phobia if that makes any sense okay so those are the biological correlates what about the psychological correlates well uh, again it's difficult to know because of the uncertainty in the gray area and the amorphous nature of the research, but there are a number of things that they found in the research that are associated with asexuality, namely difficulty knowing and describing your emotions, otherwise alexithymia. This is a condition that, you know, so difficulties with your own emotions, like you're, you're not really quite sure what emotion you're having and you have difficult time describing your emotions. So this is associated, so some people who are asexual also have this, you know, a minority of people, or there's greater rates of this, which kind of makes sense, right? Like if you don't know your emotions, you might actually be kind of cut off from your own arousal and your own sexual desire, right? Okay. Number two is interpersonal functioning. So when people have difficulty uh, 
you know, in relationships, other people, for example, people on the autism spectrum, they are more likely to be asexual. Having said that, not all autistic people are asexual by any means. Number three is depression, which I've already talked about. If you're depressed, one of the markers of depression is a lack of sexual desire. Because in reality, a depressed person typically lacks desire to do anything. They lack a desire to go skiing or to even watch TV. When you become severely depressed, you don't even want to leave your bed. You just stare at the ceiling. You just can't get yourself to do anything, let alone have sex with people. So depression is is correlated with asexuality. Number four, um, autism spectrum disorders specifically are, so not just interpersonal functioning as it relates to autism, but actually autism itself is related to asexuality. Number five, um, oh, sorry, not number five. Uh, we should, I'm just looking at my notes here. We should know that not everyone with asex, who identifies as asexuality has these four or any of these four. But these are just some of the things that studies have found. Okay, so we've looked at biological correlates and we've looked at psychological correlates. Now let's look at sociodemographic correlates. There are three of them that have been found in the research. Number one is lower education level. Some research, uh, Poston and Bommel, 2010, found that people who are asexual tend to have lower education levels. However, other research found the opposite. Prowse and Graham, 2007, found that asexual people had higher education levels. And yet other research found no difference between asexuals and and allosexuals regarding education level. Brado and Yule, 2011, found that. So hard to say. (laughs) Seems like we don't really know regarding the correlation between education level and asexuality. I would say, in conclusion, there probably isn't a correlation, but... Some people talk about lower education level in the literature. Number two is higher religiosity. Bogart in 2004 found this. So the idea is is that people who are religious have a greater likelihood of being asexual. We don't know why that is, but speculation is that some religions shame sexuality in general and might encourage asexuality among its members. And another speculation is that as an asexual person, you might turn to religion because it might be a refuge away from the stigma in the broader society. Some people might feel like, well, if I go into a church and I'm asexual there, they might actually accept me, whereas in the broader society, I'm stigmatized. Hard to say, but there is a correlation there between higher religiosity and asexuality. Number three, the third sociodemographic correlate that is identified in the literature is lower socioeconomic status or level is associated with a greater likelihood of being asexual. Poston and Bommel, 2010, and Bogart, 2004, found these, found this factor to be true, or found this factor to uh, be correlated with asexuality. But again, asexual people can have none of these. They can not be religious and not be of lower socioeconomic level. There's a, you know, asexuals are uh, a wide variety of people. And so, you know, I guess the bottom line is, is that there aren't a lot. So when we look at all the correlations, the biological correlates, the psychological correlates, the sociodemographic correlates, the gestalt that I hope you 
come away with is that uh, asexual people vary in all the same ways that allosexual people vary. You, you wouldn't say like, well, if you're rich, you're more likely to be allosexual. So, you know, there's just a lot of variety among asexuals. And so we can't really, uh, according to research, put them into a box. The, the, the one thing that I will say is worth looking at is that autistic spectrum people are a little bit more likely to be asexual, which makes sense, right? Uh, autism spectrum people sometimes have trouble with relationships in general, or they don't, they're not super interested in, um, uh, those kinds of relationships. They might be interested in family relationships and friendships, but not in romantic or sexual relationships and also being depressed. If you're depressed throughout your life, like you suffer from, you know, low grade or moderate depression since you were a teenager, it, there's a chance that you've never experienced due to your depression, a significant sexual arousal or interest in, in other people. You know, it's a similar thing to say that if you're depressed, you might not have ever experienced a good night's sleep, right? Because as a result of your depression, it makes it so it's really hard to sleep at night. And so you've never had like, you know, a week of just really restful sleep. Well, in the same way that if you're depressed for years and years, it's possible that you've just never experienced sexual attraction to another person. Again, this is not the majority. The vast majority of asexual people are not depressed and not on the autism spectrum. So we don't want to you know, look at those things as super related. But it does make sense that if you're depressed, if you're autistic, especially if you're depressed for a long period of time, that the you're, you have a greater chance of identifying as asexual. But again, the vast majority of people who are asexual, in a nutshell, we would conceptualize them as essentially being born that way, and it's not a result of some other factor like depression or autism. All right, let's go into uh, whether or not asexuality is an orientation. We've already talked about this a little bit, but in the literature, they talk about different criteria for a orientation. You know, what 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 criteria need to be met in order for us to say, yes, that qualifies for an orient sexual orientation. Like just to throw out an example, let's see what comes out of my head. Let's say that you, I don't know, are, you can only get off if you, well, I don't know if this is going to work because there's going to be a lot of potential sexual orientations that can be developed. Anyway, Never mind that. So let's just go over what the in the literature they talk about are the criteria for sexual orientations. So number one, is it stable over time? So in other words, is your sexual orientation stable, you know, over a, an amount of time? Now, in the literature, they don't talk about how long that needs to be, because it seems kind of silly to, you know, create kind of a cutoff point. But in other words, it can't be something that is brief or fleeting. It has to be something that is, you know, fairly stable over time that you are oriented toward a particular target or towards no targets at all for a long period of time. So that's one criteria, one criterion. Number two is, were there hints early in life? So some research has found that many asexual people will say that they always felt that way. 
researched by Van Houdenhove et al., 2014, Sage, 2013, Wilson and Raman, 2005, found that many people of various different sexual orientations other than heterosexuality will say that they felt this way from a very early age. Now, having said that, some asexual people will say that they didn't notice they were asexual until they were older. And there's still other people who found that they were very attracted to other people and then at a later time in their life found for you know a, a many years that they had no attraction to other people for various different reasons or for no detectable reason. So there's a wide variety, but some people consider an or- a sexual orientation in order for it to qualify it has to have hints early in life. This this is lending itself towards, or this is catered towards the uh, theory that sexual orientations are something that you're born with or that you develop very early in life, which I don't agree with. Number three is, is it just a reaction to trauma or s- circumstance or is it something else? So this is another question that some people in the literature will put forth as a criterion for sexual orientation. So in order for it to be a true sexual orientation, it can't be just a reaction to trauma. So if you were traumatized sexually, and therefore you don't want to have sex with anybody, then according to some people, they would say, that's not a sexual orientation. In fact, you might not actually know your true orientation because your true orientation is being screwed with by the fact that you were abused and therefore have a phobia uh, for sex. Um, You might actually be asexual, but we won't know until you recover from that trauma. I disagree with this one as well. I think that people can identify however they want to. I actually don't agree with any of these criteria. I think that it, it doesn't have to be stable over time. Your orientation can absolutely switch on a minute-by-minute basis if it if it feels that way to you. There's nothing wrong with that. Also, like I said, certainly there are people who have hints early in life of their sexual orientation while others do not. And also, even if it is a reaction to trauma or circumstance, and that's how you want to identify, then I say go for it. Uh, it's, it's silly to put criteria on that. Because as I was saying earlier, it's like, well, what's it to you? You know, what's it to you if I... In my head, I, you know, minute to minute, I'm like, mm, I'm asexual, mm, I'm allosexual, mm, I'm gay, mm, I'm straight, mm, I'm trans, Ooh, you know, like, what's it to you that I am doing that? It doesn't affect your life at all. It doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, there's no benefits. I don't get a. am not in a different tax bracket because I identify in a certain way. And if, if I don't want, if I want to incur the stigma associated with all those things, then, you know, I have the right to do that, right? And so, you know, you, you, can't, be a th- you can't be thought police in this world, and it, it bothers me when people do that. Now, having said that, you know, 99.999% of asexual people are not like that, right? The vast majority of asexual people are just like, yeah, I've, I've sort of known for a long time, and now when I really think about it, yeah, I, when I think about me, that's the best label that I can think of. I am asexual or I'm demisexual or I'm gray sexual or whatever. And the vast majority of people are fairly consistent over time. But like I said, if someone isn't consistent over time, what's it to you? Okay, let's move on here. The next thing I want to talk about is the LGBTQIA uh, lettership, shall we say. 
So we all know about LGB. So when I was coming up in the field, they actually called it GLB. It was GL, GLB. It was gay, lesbians, and bisexuals. And then in my field, I don't know, maybe 20, 15 years ago or something, they added the T. And they changed it to LGB to, I believe, so that it wasn't always favoring men first. And so it was LGBT. And then we started going LGBTQ, Q for queer. And then people, or questioning was, it was, you know, some people say the Q stands for queer and or questioning. And then in the, I don't know, maybe five years ago, we started using the letters LGBTQIA. So the I stands for intersex and the A stands for asexual or allied. And then other people would just say, how about we just say LGBTQ plus, they would say. And so there's a lot of different, you know, conventions going around. In my world, people tend to use LGBT or LGBTQ. Q, for some people, that is supposedly an umbrella term that captures everyone else. You know, it's just like if you're, you know, gender fluid or and you don't identify as trans or you're asexual or you're intersex or even if you're an ally i guess queer doesn't count allies but anyway um so uh, there's been some uh, hubbub in the community regarding including asexual people um, in my world uh when people are are being uh fully I don't know, uh, comprehensive, they will use LGBTQIA. In fact, I think I discovered what that meant on the podcast about like five years ago. I think Rebecca came on the podcast and she was saying LGBTQIA. And I was like, wait, what's the IA? So about five years ago, I was um, hip to that. But so in my world, in academia, where people don't scream at each other like they do on the internet, it's, it's just basically accepted that LGBT is is okay. Obviously, you can say, and, and people aren't offended if you just say LGBT. You can certainly say Q, and you can certainly say IA. But when people are being comprehensive and um, buttoned up, they will say LGBTQIA or LGBTQ+, sometimes. Anyway, the point is, is that there's not a lot of hubbub. But on the internet, there is some hubbub about whether or not asexual people or even allied people should be included in the letters. And what I'll say to that is, I don't know. It's just, it's, I, this, these are my feelings. So I'm not the uh, governor of such things. Um, I am an ally and there's that, but I am not in the LGBTQ uh, intersex asexual community myself. So I, just know that I'm an outsider commenting on it and I'm, and I'm not a scholar on the matter. Uh, you might, some of you people out there are probably scholars in LGBTQIA uh, issues and concepts might even be asexual scholars. And already you're probably throwing your phone at the wall at some of the language or uh, I'm using or some of the vibe I'm giving, but anyway, so just take what I'm about to say with grinding salt. I think asexual people should absolutely be included in the LGBTQIA consortium, shall we say, because being asexual is a sexual orientation, which I think is undoubtable, and they will absolutely experience 
uh, uh, discrimination. As I said, research has found that they experience discrimination the same as LGBT people and might even experience greater discrimination because of the way people view it as not being really human. You know, uh, today, uh, people who are not woke might actually find it easier to identify with a gay person because at least that person wants to have sex than it is for them to identify with someone who doesn't want to have sex with someone at all. Apparently, that's what research is showing. Some research is showing. So you have the key components of being included in this group. You are a sexual orientation and you are absolutely discriminated against in this society. Now, you know, if we really used those criteria for being included in the letter consortium, then, you know, a lot of things will start to get included, right? Uh, I have heard about polyamory people being included. Uh, What about fetishes, right? I mean, if you have a fetish for shoes, for example, and you can only have sex when a high heel shoe is involved, well, that's you could argue that's a sexual orientation, right? And you're absolutely stigmatized in our society. So should we include paraphilias in it? And I also know that some pedophilia people will argue that they deserve to be included in the group. You know, it's a, they will argue it's a sexual orientation and they're absolutely stigmatized. So, you know, I, I don't know the answer to it. That's It's not to me just to decide. And... I grew up in a time when we used the term sexual minorities. We just blanketly called everyone a sexual minority. In fact, the agency in Seattle that focuses on LGBTQIA folks was called the sexual, it was Seattle Counseling for Sexual Minorities, I think it was called. I don't think it's called that anymore, or it shouldn't be called that anymore, I don't, because I think that term sexual minority is not preferred. But anyway, so I've grown up uh, before they even used GLB. And um, so, you know, things are evolving and I'm totally fine with that. I, th- I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to me to, to witness the evolution and the progression as a society and as a community. I, I think uh, it's just fantastic. So, you know, if we end up with 25 letters, that's fine as long as I can memorize them all. I, I'd love to destigmatize all the groups. And I, th- I think it's definitely worth it. And, you know, some people will say, well, why don't we just come up with one word for all of it? And, you know, there's some argument for that. And that's what queer is kind of becoming a little bit. But again, queer doesn't encapsulate everybody. You know, the poly people don't identify as queer necessarily. Asexual people certainly may not identify as queer. So um, I think that it is a good idea that we individually honor and identify different groups because each group has a different educational task with society. And when we, you know, when we include, so for example, when we added the T, right, it was LGBT, a lot of people are like, wait, what does the T mean? And you have to say, well, it means stands for trans. Well, what does that mean? And so now there's this opportunity for people to learn this sort of thing. Whereas if we didn't include that T, how far backward would we be regarding society? So that's my opinion, I, and I'm sticking with it until I am convinced otherwise, which, you know, may happen. And by the way, there are reports of people being quite nasty within the LGBTQIA community where they will 
say that asexuals are not allowed in the community. They will say, no, you are a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And they're, you know, there's, that's certainly not the majority of people, but online people can be nasty. And the interpretation I have of that, because there's, there's been, there's been infighting, shall I, what I'll call infighting uh, with every step of the way. There, I, I remember in the 90s, there was resistance between gays and lesbians actually b- uh, banding together. Uh, in the 90s, there, there were um, gay people and lesbians who actually didn't want to be associated with the other group. I remember that. They'd be like, no, I don't want to be, you know, lesbians would be like, I don't want to be lumped in with gay men. I don't like any gay guys. I don't, I don't want to be associated with men. We should have our own group. Why, why, do we, why are we calling ourselves G, GLB? You know, I don't want to be lumped in with that. And then when uh, gays and lesbians were looking at bisexuals, there was some infighting regarding that, uh, saying that you're not really a sexual minority because you're bisexual, uh, you're just experimenting and stuff. You know, obviously not all gays and lesbians were having those thoughts, but there were some. And then with trans, it was a similar thing. It's like, hey, you know, you're trans. You're not a sexual orientation. You don't deserve to be in our group. And so every time it opens up, there's there's some discussion and then there's some fringe opinions, shall I say, where people are screaming at each other. And, you know, I, I suppose it's all part of the discourse. I just wish people weren't so nasty to each other. And my speculation about that nastiness is that when you are an oppressed group, you incur and internalize a tremendous amount of hatred and oppression and discrimination and marginalization and and bias from the dominant uh, community and the dominant society. When you're a trans person and you're just walking around the world, you are incurring just minute by minute uh, mistreatment and dirty looks and institutionalized transphobia. And, you know, it's just a very stressful life, right? And I mean, not for everybody, but, you know, we can imagine for many. And there becomes this this um, toxicity that you sort of internalize. And then when you finally sort of eke out your place in your community and maybe even in our society, and you're like, ooh, I am now part of the LGBT community. Well, and then someone else tries to get in, right? They're, they're, it's, I, I guess an analogy would be, and I, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, my God, is that you know, the Titanic is going down and everyone is stressed out and freaking out and some people are going to die. And there's a lifeboat and you find yourself on, you you know, you think you're going to die and you're swimming through the cold waters and you, you know, and many other people that are with you are drowning and dying and you finally get to a lifeboat and, you, you know, they let you in. But the boat, it seems very overfull, and then some other people start coming up and they're like, let me in the lifeboat. And you're just like, fuck you. Uh, you know, so many people died just so I could get on this lifeboat. Like, no, if you get on this lifeboat, you, you could bring us down. Find another fucking lifeboat. <laughs> like, <laughs> my life is already bad enough as it is. I, you know, we could still die on this boat. Go somewhere else. I, you know, I don't know if that analogy really fits for my conceptualization of what's happening, but 
it, I think it fits kind of, I, I think that's what it's sort of like, you know, when you're stressed out and you're not given much and you're treated like crap and then you finally eke out your little corner of safety and then other people are trying to get into that corner, it can feel threatening and scary and unnecessary. You could be like, look, find your own corner. You know, if you want to be asexual, fine, but identify as asexual somewhere else. Now, I just want to say that I, I don't know the data. I would suspect that most LGBTQIA people are totally cool with adding the asexual label. So uh, that's my anecdotal experience. I don't know. Um, but anyway, there is some infighting and some people that are barring entry into the community uh, and they're not letting asexuals in. So just thought I'd mention that. Okay, so let's look at gender and asexuality. There, there's some things I, I've already said, but let, let's look a little bit more closely at gender and asexuality. Some authors assert that gender is a big part of asexuality. As I talked about before, if, you're, if you identify as a cisgender woman, or I, I guess if you identify in the research as, as a woman— any woman, any sort of woman, then you are more likely to be asexual. And among people who identify as asexual, s- somewhere between uh, you know sixty percent and two thirds of people uh, that are asexual are women. So they there's there's some speculation as to why that is. You know, why are women more likely to be be asexual? Why are men less likely to be asexual? And there's there's a number of uh, speculations here. Uh, I have three. Number one is these authors will assert that women's sexuality is more flexible than men's sexuality in general. So they will say that, in other words, women are more responsive to life circumstances. So, for example, if their relationship is going really well, then their sex drive might respond to that and go up. Whereas if their relationship is not going well, then their sex drive might completely die. Whereas, according to speculation, men's sexuality and their drive and their libidos are less responsive to life circumstances and tend to be more consistent over time. And that's why more women and less men will be asexual. I find this to be possible, but I also anecdotally have not found this to be true. I anecdotally, I see no difference between men and women when it comes to asexuality. I have had male clients who are asexual and female clients who are asexual and queer, you know, gender fluid people who are asexual. So I find it not useful to look at asexual, asexuality as more of a female thing. It's the same thing with, you know, being borderline, for example, uh, something like two thirds or 70% of people with borderline are female. But in my experience, I've treated several men who have borderline. So I, I, I just don't really consider those distinctions to be very helpful, honestly. So, um, so there's that. Um, and also I find that this assertion, you know, that women's sexuality is more flexible. I, f- I find that to be one of those arguments, those just-so stories that seem to make sense given our cultural programming and not necessarily true in reality. You know, the, the idea here is it's like, well, men are just horn dogs and they'll have sex anytime, anywhere. 
And women, you know, they're like delicate flowers and everything has to be just right for them to want to have sex. And I just have not found that to be true. I do not find that cultural story to be relevant to actual people's lives. I have certainly worked with men who definitely need to have very particular circumstances in order to enjoy sex. And I've certainly seen women who could have sex anywhere, anytime and do. So I just don't find that to be a useful thing. But anyway, that's what some of the literature is talking about. Number two is other authors will assert that women are not as socialized to think of sex as a marker of their worth. And they're also socialized to be less sexual in general in our society. So they're less motivated to cultivate sexual relationships with people. And so therefore a little less, a little more likely to be asexual. Whereas men are socialized to associate their masculinity deeply with how much sex they're having. So this, this uh, speculation I could get behind Women are absolutely socialized to be more prudent about their sexuality and not be quote-unquote slutty. Men are absolutely socialized to associate their penis size and the amount of partners they have and how, how, many, ba- how many women they can bag as an indication of how masculine they are. And so as a result of that socialization – you're as a male, if you are kind of struggling with your libido, you might be more likely to sort of push past that or even just invent sexual urges that might not be there if if they're not there. And whereas women are, you know, if, if you're leaning towards asexuality as a woman, your self-worth is is not necessarily tied to making that choice. So that's I could absolutely see that as being true. So According to this speculation, which I can get behind, it makes me wonder if we didn't socialize men and women differently in our society, might we see a more equal distribution of asexuality between men and women? Who knows? It's also possible, I know some of you are screaming at your phone right now, that the biological differences between men and women could play a role in the development of asexuality, higher levels of testosterone, blah, blah, blah. Certainly could be true. Um, you know, going on your period every month couldn't doesn't really help sexuality necessarily. It can for some, but with others, it can be you know uh, it can add a lot of difficulty, cramps, and blah blah blah. So you know, you, you could see biological things being an influence as well. But anyway, number three is other authors will assert that asexuality can affect gender development. So the way in which people develop their gender identity might be affected by asexuality. So in other, you know, you can see a scenario where it's, you know, take a teen boy who is developing sexually and he doesn't like sex. He doesn't want to have sex with other people. And he really considers himself to be different than others. And so therefore he's like, okay, I'm a, you know, I'm a 13 year old boy and all my friends are talking about sex all the time. And man, do I just not want to have sex? It just seems repulsive to me. Well, this might affect the way that you see yourself as a gendered person fitting in our society. You might be like, so if, you know, real men want to have sex with women all the time, and I don't want to have sex with anybody, maybe that makes me not a real man. Well, then what am I? Well, maybe I'm 
maybe I'm trans or maybe I'm non-binary or maybe I'm this or that. So, you know, because gender and the way we fit in into society and how we view ourselves and our identities are, uh, you know, all affected by various different factors, being asexual could be a factor in someone developing more gender fluid identities. For example, Brado et al. 2010 study found that 13% of asexual people did not identify as male or female. So that's a much higher rate than allosexual people. Again, for asexual people, 13% of them did not identify as a binary gender. So, you know, makes sense. Another, uh, a study found that trans folks have a much higher rate of asexuality, 4% as opposed to 1%. Now, some of you might be saying, well, maybe that's biological. Again, with the atypical prenatal environment, that could lead to both asexuality and transsexuality or non-binary you know, gender uh, feelings and identities. Could be hard to know, but I could see all being true, honestly. So that's another thing to just keep in mind that, um, yeah, you know, the, the, as a demonstration of that, that's related, I suppose, is as I was growing up, I was in an all white community for the most part. There were the occasional Asian person and the occasional black person, but it was just a vast sea of white people and, and very, shall we say, you know, I don't know, white bread Americans, you know, these aren't white. There, there were hardly any Jewish people. There were no white, white Europeans from England or Australia, you know, it was very Americanized white people. So very monoculture. And I being a half Japanese person, half white person was quite exotic in that situation. Now for the vast majority of my friends, they were not discriminatory or mean to me. But I definitely did feel different, you know, especially when I was really young, when I was like fourth grade, fifth grade, I would look at myself in the mirror and I would just be like, I'm different. And I didn't like that. It felt bad. There's a lot of pressure put on kids to not stick out. And the things that I stuck out about, I did not like. I was taller than most people in my class. And I didn't like that. I want, you know, I, I would, I tend to slouch even to this day because I don't want to be tall. I didn't like the fact that I was Asian. I didn't like the way my nose looked. My nose is a little Asian. And so I would try to make it longer and pointy. I would hold it uh, in a point to try to make the nose like stay long. And there were just, a, you know, I, my hair looked Asian at times, and I, I would try to make it not look Asian. And I wonder if that had an effect on my gender uh, sort of notions, because throughout my life, I have, so regarding ethnicity and race, I've never quite felt like I fit in anywhere. Until I went to Hawaii when I was, I don't know, first time I went to Hawaii, I was probably like 35 or something. And I was like, oh my God, I fit in here. It's the one place that I, everyone looks like me. Everyone is hapa. Everyone's, you know, half Asian or part Asian or different sorts of Asians or, you know, and it's the only place in the world where I feel like I fit in. And so 
I grew up with this sense like I, I didn't fit in racially at all anywhere. Even with Japanese people, I didn't really fit in because I wasn't fully Japanese, right? So I just grew up with the sense of like, I don't fit in. Well, when it, come to, when it came to my gender development, I think that that affected how I developed how I feel about my gender. Now, I absolutely am cisgender male, but I also have a very strong connection to my quote-unquote feminine side. I don't consider it a feminine side. I just consider myself to be who I am. And if society labels some of the things that I do as feminine, then great. But I don't, I don't see it as a feminine thing, just like I don't see the fact that I played football a masculine thing. I just consider it a me thing. And uh, so my, you know, although I'm not trans or queer or gender fluid, although if I grew up today, I wonder if when I was younger and still trying things on, if I wouldn't, if I wouldn't have identified myself as gender fluid or more non-binary or something. Because I remember early in life just being like, I just don't understand why I have to be pigeonholed into masculine qualities. Like, why would anyone want to be limited in that way? And and why it, it, why are some of the things that I'm doing being labeled as feminine? Like, why can't I just be who I am? And so I wonder if being of mixed race, growing up in a monoculture white you know community, made it so that... I, in general, questioned a lot of constructs, including gender and how it applied to me. So in that way, it's analogous to if you grow up asexual, you might question a lot of things because you're, you go through a period of time where you're questioning what society is telling us about sexuality. And you're like, well, what society is saying is that everyone is supposed to be obsessed with sex and everyone's supposed to enjoy sex. And if you don't enjoy sex, there's something wrong with you. And yet for me, I don't enjoy sex and I'm fine with it. And I don't feel like there's anything wrong with me. So society must be kind of dumb about some things. And maybe it's dumb about gender. And maybe I don't have to give in to the binary of masculine and feminine. So I think that that's a viable course for some people. Obviously, it's not for everyone, but... I can absolutely see that being the case. When you start questioning one major institution in your society, I think it lends itself to questioning a lot of other major institutions in society. And so anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I tend to rail against institutions in our society and and givens in our society. It's one of the most enjoyable things that I can do. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't say I have pleasure in it, but I, I definitely take to it. And I wonder if it all had the, the, you know, the germination of all that began when I was growing up in a society, a monoculture, white American culture, and I was being told things about Asians. I was being told things about, you know, half, half people. I was being told things about Japanese people and people of of non-white ethnicity, and it was not checking with my reality. And therefore, I was like, from a very early age, I thought, wow, some things in our society make no sense. I wonder what else in our society makes no sense. I'm not going to assume anything in our society makes sense, because at the age of six, 
I realized society made no sense when it came to race. I didn't put it in those words, but I definitely detected it. I mean, I, I remember, you know, because it was worse when I was a kid, right? I mean, World War II wasn't that long before I was born in 1970. And growing up in Issaquah, which is just a little bit east of Seattle, and have just the obsession that white people had about the fact that I was Japanese or that my last name was Honda or that, you know, I don't know, I was half or something. You know, there's just a lot of commentary on it. And some of it was fine, but some of it was just bizarre, you know, um, like I'll just, <laughs> I'm on this tip. I'll just say one last thing. When I was a kid, people were terrified of me. They were terrified of getting in a fight with me, particularly people who didn't know me. So I'd be, you know, at the park or something and some white kids would be messing with me and I'd stand up for myself and they'd all run. Not because I was tall, but so I'll, I'll, I'll just put a question mark there. Everyone out there, just take a guess as to why they would be terrified of me. Just, just looking at me, not because I was tall because older kids were terrified of me too. You know, if you, you younger people probably have no idea. You older people absolutely know the answer to this, which is that people assumed I knew karate or Kung Fu or Taekwondo or something just because I was Asian, (laughs) which I did not know. I, you know, I grew up with a lot of siblings and I begged my parents to sign me up for karate or something. It just seemed so cool, but they could only do so many activities with four kids. Right. And I already was in, you know, every sport, you know, I played basketball, football, soccer, wrestling, you know, volleyball, track, uh, what else, you know, I just, I played all the sports. And so I think my parents were a little tired of driving me everywhere and they had three other kids. They had to drive around town. So, uh, I did not know anything about martial arts and kids were terrified of me because they thought I was going to kill them. (laughs) One of the benefits, I guess, of racism Anyway, okay, let's go on to treatment. Let's end with treatment. And also, uh, I'm going to read an email from a patron. Okay, so treatment. Let's look at medication first. The only medication that the FDA has approved for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So this is not a medication for asexuality. Just like there's no medication for being gay, there's no medication for being hetero, There's no medication for being trans, and there's no medication for being asexual. But there are medications for people who have hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And again, these are people, by definition, must have a significant amount of distress about the fact that they don't have desire for sex anymore, and they don't consider it to be an outside force that is forcing them to feel distress. They have internal distress. They don't like the fact that they don't have any sexual desire. Usually these people used to have sexual desire and they no longer do, or there's some medical explanation for their lack of sexual desire and they, they want to change that. And there's one medication that is the FDA has approved and it's called flibanserin and it is sold under the trade name of, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Adi, Adi, that the way it is spelled is A-D-D, so add, A-D-D, Y-I, ye, add ye. It's a terrible name. I, I just, I don't understand drug companies and their stupid names for things, especially when you can't pronounce it. 
And this is, you know, an American company coming up with the names. You know, if, if this was like Indian or something, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, it must be pronounceable in their language. But this is an American company. And when they were asked why in the hell you came up with this name, they, uh, a representative said, uh, you know, told a journalist, we chose this unique name and spelling to represent the utility of the treatment and essence of the brand. It represents the individuality of the of the first of her kind and the definition of the woman's best self. So this this is just a bunch of marketing bullshit. I mean, just listen to this. We chose this unique name, Adi, Adi. We chose this unique name and spelling to represent the utility of the treatment and essence of the brand. Okay, I don't know. That first sentence is just marketing gobbledygook. But this second sentence is just so ridiculous. It represents the individuality of the first of her kind. So they're calling the medication a her, which is just ridiculous. It represents the individuality of the first of her kind and the definition of a woman's best self. So <laughs> let me explain what this drug is, and then you can fully laugh at this. So it's a medication that is called female Viagra on the internet, which is ridiculous. I don't think the marketers are calling it that, but people are calling it. You may have heard about it in the news. The uh, medication is approved for the treatment of people with hypoactive sexual uh, desire disorder who are premenopausal women. So women who have not entered menopause and who are experiencing a lack of sexual desire. And the, according to research, when they do trials, they find that, and listen to this very closely, they find that when people take this, you know, so people will come in and women will come in, you know, 30 year old women, 40 year old women will come in and say, I have no libido and can you give me medication? And they go on this medication and it increases on average the amount of satisfying sexual events. So not just sexual events, but satisfying sexual events per month by an average of one half over placebo. So when they compare the, so they, they measure the success according to the research of this medication by the reported amount of satisfying sexual events that the women report. So they, you know, pre-medication trial, they'll say, how many satisfying sexual events do you have in a month? And um, they, you know, will say, oh, I don't know, like I, I have one satisfying sexual event per month, or I have, you know, I have zero satisfying sexual uh, events per month. And then after taking this medication, on average, they will say they have 0.5 more satisfying sexual events per month. So if they said um, one, then they will say I had 1.5 <laughs> satisfying sexual events per month. So that's not a lot, right? That That's not a huge uh, change. And that's on average. That means that some people are experiencing no increase compared to placebo. Also, according to other research, they have found that this medication doesn't work at all for anybody. And other research finds that when this medication does work, it only works for two months. So the effect dies after two months. 
So the medication seems to be pretty useless. I'm going to guess that as we study this more moving into the future, that the effect size will be even smaller, even among the studies that find an effect. Because if, if early trials are finding such a small effect, then over time, as uh, other more robust, more buttoned up research is conducted, typically what happens is you see a, the effect size going down. That's what happened with SSRIs. Early research found a certain effect size, and that effect size has just been getting smaller and smaller over time. It's a well-known phenomenon. So the so-called female Viagra, you know, a pill that increases a female's libido, uh, on average is pretty worthless. Now, for some people, could it be helpful? Sure. And I'm sure there are some people who have found success, but on average, it's, it's not helping people. And there are side effects. People can, uh, essentially, there's a lot of side effects re related to lowering one's blood pressure. So this is actually interesting because it's the opposite of actual Viagra for men. Viagra will increase your, um, your uh, heart rate and your blood pressure. And therefore, from what I understand, it makes erections more likely and um, more likely to sustain because you have more blood sort of pumping into it from what I understand. And I think that anyway, the point is, is that the opposite happens with the quote unquote female Viagra where you have extremely low blood pressure and sleepiness and dizziness, and you might even lose consciousness. There are women who take Adi or Flibanserin and pass out upon taking it, which, you know, can't be pleasant. Other medications, obviously, uh, Vi actual Viagra can be used to potentially, you know, as a, you know, you have a man, someone with a penis coming in and saying, I don't, have any sexual desire, you know, one easy thing to try is Viagra. Just say, well, how about, you know, the next time you're thinking about having sex with your spouse, pop a Viagra half an hour before and see if that increases your sexual desire. You know, well, you know, who knows, maybe that'll help. Also, testosterone has been used for some people, for men and women, uh, uh, increasing testosterone levels, taking a testosterone supplement can potentially help some people, but it, 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 from what I understand, it's, it's not a very robust effect size in terms of helping people. So the long and the short of it is that for asexuality, there are, there's no medication because there's no need for medication. There's no, there's no need for a treatment for asexuality. I just want to say that. But for people who, who lack sexual desire and want to uh, have sexual desire, they want to explore that, you can, uh, uh, try some medications, but that's probably not going to work. Sexuality and sexual desire is a very elusive thing. There are a lot of medications that can eliminate it, but we do not have a lot of things that can actually increase it. For, for some people, they actually will experience, some psychotropics will actually increase their libido. Um, libido is a very fickle thing. It can, it can change with a variety of things, increase, decrease, stay the same. And, um, it can be highly anecdotal for some people, but anyway, the, the, the predominant research points to not a lot of medication options for people when they lack sexual desire and they want to get it back. Regarding psychotherapy, it, the two identified therapies for lack of sexual desire is sex therapy, obviously, and forms of cognitive behavioral therapy. 
But for me, what I do with people, is, depending on where they're at in their uh, exploration, typically if, if someone comes in and they're saying, look, I have no sexual desire, or I have a couple that one of the members, or even both of them say, you know, we don't have any sexual desire anymore. The, the place that I uh, go to is I actually point them towards the Asexual Visibility and Education Network, AVEN, which was founded, you know, five or six years ago and has thousands of members. It is the um, organization that is uh, act- does activism and education for asexuality. So I point people towards that website, and uh, it's a good resource to explore. If you lack sexual desire, going to that um, might help. The thing that I tell people is like, there's a chance that you might actually find yourself identifying as being asexual. There's also a chance that you'll that you'll identify as someone who's allosexual and has, and your sexuality is just being suppressed. But we have to explore that, you know, we have to try that on. It's a similar exploration. If someone were to come to me and say, I'm having a lot of sexual feelings towards people of the same sex, which really scares me because my religion says that I can't be gay. And with those people, I would say, well, let's explore it. You know, let's see what it means. It, it might mean that you're heterosexual. You, you might, after exploring this, say, you know what? I identify as heterosexual, and sometimes I fantasize about people of the same sex, but I'm not, I don't consider myself to be gay or lesbian or, or even bisexual. Or you might find at the end of the exploration that you are bisexual or homosexual, but it requires a fair amount of exploration. And we can't just explore that sometimes on our own, because if we do that, we run the risk of allowing internalized homophobia or internalized asexual phobia, and which will affect our conclusions, right? You know, if, if someone is just sitting alone at home and they're like, you know what, I haven't had any sexual desire for years. And that person has been programmed to believe that asexuality isn't a thing or that asexuality is pathological or something. And so if they just start exploring their own ideas, those internalized, marginalized bias, you know, things in their head might get in the way of them realizing who they quote unquote really are. So anyway, when people come to me who lack sexual desire, what I do with them is I say, well, let's explore it. You know, let's see how this goes and let's maybe experiment, maybe try a few things and uh, we'll see what happens. But what I tell people is that we might, we might find, again, as I was saying before, one of three things. At the end of this exploration and experimentation, you might find that you actually identify as asexual, meaning that you are cool with the fact that you have no sexual attraction towards other people and, and that's how you want to live your life. You might also, at the end of the exploration, f- discover that you just had allosexuality that was being suppressed. And once we remove those barriers, you identify as allosexual and you're living a life that is satisfying those needs. The third option is you might stay in a state of having low sexual drive, but still identify as an allosexual who has your sexuality being suppressed by one reason or or another, or even reasons you don't really know. So there's a lot of options at the end, but all those depend on you. And I will collaboratively explore this with you, but I won't know the answer to that question. I can't top down 
as an expert tell you what you are. You're the only one who's going to be able to know that in the same way that I can't evaluate someone and say, oh, you're gay or, oh, you're heterosexual. That's, that's a personal choice that you have to identify for yourself. I'll be there with you and I'll offer my opinion, I suppose, my tentative opinion about certain things. Or I might say, well, people who talk like that sometimes identify this way, but you know, it's up to you and I'll be there with you. But, I, but that's, that's a personal choice that you make. So that, that's what I, I talk with people about as an introduction. And then we just go into their history. We go into their phenomenolo- phenomenology. How, how do they experience sexuality? How have they experienced sexuality? We also go into what do they truly want with their sexuality? You know, what are their goals in life? Do, do they care about sex? Do they want to be sexual? Or do they not? You know, what's, what's inside of them? Now, for some people, given their life circumstances, might lack a sense of self and might have a difficult time answering those questions. They might, it might take years just for them to develop enough sense of self for them to be able to answer those questions. Because, you know, you need a sense of self. You need to know who you are. You need to have an inner sense of who you are in order to answer such questions. Such, you know, they can be really quite deep. Some people because of mistreatment, there a lot of things in their life are determined by how other people treat them and what other people want for them. You know, what careers people want them to go into. They don't think about them themselves. They, they are reacting to what other people want for them. You know, who they should date, how they should dress, how they should think, what their political opinions are. Because they were treated a certain way, they might not actually know what, you know, their own political opinions are. But they will adopt the political opinions of those around them. Well, in the same way, they might just adopt the sexuality that is being expected of them, right? And in order to find, quote-unquote, their true sexuality, they need to enter therapy for a long time just to, just to develop a sense of self so that they can actually ask themselves and answer the question, who am I sexually? So that's another thing that I think about. With couples, uh, it's a delicate process, you know, because if you have a couple, one person comes in or, you know, one person in the couple is like, I want to have sex more. It's ridiculous. You know, we're like roommates. We never have sex. And the other partner is like, you know what? I don't care about sex. I gave up on sex a long time ago. I, I don't know if I've ever cared about sex. And so with couples like this, it's a similar exploration, the person with low sex drive might at the end of exploration say, you know what, honey, I'm really sorry, but I am asexual. I don't care about sex. And if you want me to get into sex, I just don't think that's going to happen. And I am so sorry about that. Um, or at the end of exploration, they might be like, oh my God, we found the barrier to my hidden allosexuality and now we're having sex all the time. Or the third option is at the end of the exploration, they might be like, okay, Nothing has worked thus far to help me connect with my libido, but I still believe it's in there. I don't believe that I'm asexual. I'm not going to identify as asexual. I'm going to continue to try, or maybe I'll just accept the fact that my, you know, submerged libido is just going to stay submerged, and, um, but I'm not going to identify as asexual, and, you know, let's see what we can do here as a couple, that kind of thing. So... When people want to change their libido, there are a lot of things that can be done. This is, you know, pretty 
personal on things, but a lot of sexual education is usually necessary. There's a lot of, you know, I've had some of the most educated, genius clients sit on my couch and not know one thing about sexuality. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but they, let's just say they, they know very little or have very regressive viewpoints about sexuality. Because where in the world do people learn about sex, right? I mean, where do people learn truly about sex positivity and about how to express yourself sexually for men and women, you know? So it's not uncommon for highly intelligent, highly educated people to have some of the most adolescent viewpoints when it comes to sex. And so when someone has low sex drive, I often have to spend a good amount of time figuring out what is the most useful educational route to take with them. Cause we don't have a ton of time usually, cause there's a lot of things to talk about. So sometimes it's a matter of assessing, you know, okay, well, what educational area is going to be the most beneficial here? Also another part of the exploration around asexuality versus allosexuality is advocating for non-shaming sex positivity since most people have internalized shame around sexuality and their own sexuality. A good amount of uh, changing that around towards sex positivity and non-shaming of the self. And that that can involve a, a lot of cognitive therapy, a lot of narrative therapy, a lot of behavioral therapy, like go home, get a mirror out, look at your genitals and get used to it. That's you. That is your, that's, that's your junk there, you know, and it's good junk. It's the junk that God gave you and appreciate it. <laughs> that is your vagina. That is your penis. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful thing. You, I want you to look at it and take it in, you know, that's, that's you and it's beautiful. You know, that, that can be very powerful for some people. Now, for some, it doesn't really matter to them. But a lot of people just have so much shame about their genitals or so much shame about the way they have sex or so much shame about their bodies. My God, the amount of people who have shame about their bodies in our society, it's heartbreaking. 99% of Americans hate their bodies. <laughs> you know, um, It's just awful. And so that could be another massive barrier to arousal and enjoyment of sex, right? And libido, for that matter. I, I know so many people who when they have an urge to have sex, the next thought they have is, well, but look at my body, I'm disgusting. And so, you know, if every time you have an urge for sex, or if every time someone initiates sex with you, the the first feeling and gestalt you have is a massive dose of shame about your body, well, guess what? Your libido is going to shrivel up and die. <laughs> and... So, you know, with clients, we have to work on that. And that could take a long time. You know, it's it's easier said than done. You know, I can't just look at a client and say, like, stop body shaming yourself. You know, sometimes it takes a lot of conversations, a lot of couple work around, like, so what do you think of my body? You know, very honest uh, conversations. Very typically, almost all the time, what spouses will say is, yeah, sure, you've gained some pounds since we first got married, but my God, I am still massively attracted to you. And, you know, the little bit of extra pounds that you've gained means nothing to me. Like, give me more of that stuff, you know, is 
typically what people will say. You know, body shaming is is such an individual, internal experience that has nothing to do with reality often. Anyway, um, also just talking about liberation and about uh, just uh, anti-oppression and marginalization and sex shaming and gender shaming and, you know, uh, shaming in general is an important part of the exploration of trying to you know, connect with your true sexuality and your libido. Experimentation, assertiveness skills, etc. There's just a lot of different things that one can do. Again, when we're talking about treatment, we are not talking about how to treat asexual people. There's no reason to treat a content person who is totally cool with the fact that they have no libido. There is no treatment for that. Uh, No one should treat that, just like no one should treat gay people to not be gay. The only treatment we're talking about here is when people are confused about what they are and or they absolutely are not confused about the fact that they have no sexual drive, they have no libido, and they have a tremendous amount of distress about that and definitely want treatment to get that to be changed. So just to clarify about that. All right, so I want to end the podcast by reading an email from a patron who wrote in, which is the whole reason why I'm doing this episode, actually. I'll keep the email anonymous, and I'm, I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of the things here. I'm an aromantic person because I want a relationship. However, I can't ever feel the connection to the other person. Sex is something I have always been turned off by as well. I'm female. I'm 22. I've always been kind of distant when it comes to relationships. I've tried a few times to have a relationship and none of them worked out due to me being independent and not wanting to hang out every day. I would find myself getting nervous all the time and not knowing how to respond to their texts. I also wasn't good at knowing how to act in public with them. The idea of kissing or doing anything other than hugging made me nervous. I've, I've been sexually assaulted as an adult. I think you should know that. I, I often feel guilty that I don't seem to care if a guy breaks up with me. I just feel okay and relieved when he breaks up with me. Maybe it is related to my depression and anxiety, but I can't be sure. The same goes for sex in the way that I can, I can take it or I can leave it. I don't want to have sex, but I feel like I owe sex to the other person. Okay, so let's review what this patron is saying. She's a young female adult. She has a sexual assault history. She says she's depressed and anxious, and she's turned off by sex. She has sex with partners because she feels like she owes them, uh, perhaps to keep them in the relationship, or she feels like it's an obligation or something. Also, she isn't interested in romantic relationships, and she often feels or always feels distant from other people. So it sounds like she could be asexual and could be aromantic, but only you, patron, can identify that as such. Only you are the one who can say whether or not you're asexual or not, because you could, if it felt right to you, say, you know what? I'm asexual. I've never been interested in sex. I'm also aromantic because compared to other people, I don't think I'm very interested in romance. I feel like I'm just going through the motions. 
you can absolutely say to yourself, given what you're telling me, it would seem totally consistent. But you could also say to yourself, no, I'm not asexual and I'm not aromantic. There, I think I am a sexual person who has some barriers that are, that's getting in the way of my sexuality. You could also say I am a romantic person, but there are barriers getting in the way of my true romantic self. You're the only one who knows the answer to that. You are depressed, you're anxious, and you've been sexually assaulted. Those three factors can absolutely present barriers to your libido and to your romantic, um, you know, uh, enjoyment or, you know, urges. And some, some other factors that you talked about is you, you kept saying that you felt nervous about relationships and about sex. So it's possible that with a reduction in that anxiety, whatever that means, that enjoyment in sex and uh, a drive for sex, a libido, and a drive for relationships might emerge, you know, because you're, you're, not, you're not a quintessential asexual because a, a quintessential asexual, you might find yourself identifying as a quintal, quintessential asexual at some point, but quintessential asexuals, when they, when they talk to me, they will say, I just, I'm not into sex and I'm totally cool with it. And I've always been this way and I, I don't care. I'm not distressed about it. Um, I'm also not really into romance and I don't care, you know, if they're both aromantic and asexual. Now you might find again, after exploration that that's how you feel about things. And therefore um, you would, it would be consistent to, for you to identify as asexual and aromantic. So, you know, it's hard to say where you're at. You're the only one who can say. And what I would encourage you to do, patron, is to continue exploring that. Look at what barriers might be there that need to be removed in order for you to know. You know, for example, with the nervousness, let's say you entered therapy and or you entered a relationship that you really trust and you really worked on that nervousness. You know, you really came out and said, look, I don't know what is going on with me, but I, I kind of want to be in a relationship with you, but I also kind of don't really care. <laughs> and I hope that's okay with you. Is it okay? Is that okay with you? And I kind of don't really care about having sex with people. I guess I'll have sex with you if you want, but I feel like I'm just acting like I care about sex when I don't really care about sex. How do you feel about that? Find someone that is cool with that and willing to explore that with you. Uh, Some people are totally cool with exploring that with you. And then if you can really feel safe and non-nervous and really assertive about yourself and you can actually tell people, look, I don't want to do, I don't want to do public display of affection Look, I don't want to have sex anymore with you. I, I, I want to I want to be in a relationship with you, but and I want to hang out and have fun, but I don't want to have sex with you. Um, I I'm also not really into texting you back all the time. I, I can I can sort of not see you for a few days, and I'm cool with that. You know, if you find a relationship like that, and you can really feel safe, and you can really feel non nervous, then I wonder how you would feel. You know, if if after not feeling nervous you find yourself feeling at peace and saying, this is perfect. I have a partner who I see once a week. We never have sex and I don't have to text that person all the time, but 
we have a very, you know, surface romantic relationship. That is like my perfect zone. You might find that that's what you like. You might be like, okay, well, it looks like I am uh, asexual and I am just barely romantic. You know, I'm a one person, I'm a one date a week romantic sort of person. You might find that to be true. You might also find that once you establish that kind of safety, that libido might emerge in you because the nervousness is no longer a barrier to that libido. You just don't know until you experiment. Now, having said that, you could say to yourself, I don't want to do that experiment and I don't care. And I just want to accept who I am now. I don't care that I get nervous about that. Because that's the other thing is it's possible that your nervousness is actually a result of you doing something that you don't want to do. You might actually be, quote unquote, truly asexual and truly aromantic. And you're trying to force yourself into a societal mode and expectations that other people have for you and society has for you. You've internalized these notions of of the perfect life or you know what makes humans human. And you're forcing yourself into a situation and you're getting nervous because you're not in a safe place that is really meeting your needs. But it's hard to know. You got given your email, I don't know. And I would love to hear what you find on this journey of exploration for you. And I would love to tell the listeners what happens for you. For the rest of you, let me know what you think. I know we have a lot of asexual listeners to the podcast. Hopefully I didn't say anything stupid or offensive. And if I did, uh, I apologize. Let me know what I did. I am always uh, glad and invite learning for myself in terms of foibles that I might get into. And I hope that if I did offend that you trust that I was giving my best shot and hopefully advocating um, in in a good way. I don't know, though. Let me know. Because this is the first sort of extended conversation or deep dive that I've had about asexuality. It's it Before really doing a deep dive on this, it was a lot of the details about this were unknown to me. And so it's been kind of a crash course. And, you know, let me know what you think. Email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Again, become a patron of the podcast if you like stuff like this, particularly if you like it when I advocate for these sorts of things. Um, when I'm, As I was talking about earlier, I think when we get more and more patrons, I get more and more time to dedicate to these things, and I can actually potentially become a spokesperson on some level. I can reach out to media outlets and say like, look, if you need someone to advocate for mental health awareness or for LGBTQIA issues as an ally or, you know, whatever sort of political thing that I get behind, I will often talk about incels and, you know, men's rights activists, these kinds of people, feminism. I I want to actually get maybe a little bit more intentional about my political actions. And um, I'd love for people to become patrons to support that if you care. And if, and also, I guess another thing is patrons out there, let me know what sort of advocacy you'd like me to do. I am 
absolutely open to suggestions like that. One could say that a, a lot of the directions that I've taken on the podcast have been due to people writing me and telling me what to talk about. Like today, I'm talking about asexuality because a patron wrote in and others saying that they wanted me to talk about this. Otherwise, I probably would have never talked about it. <laughs> so uh, I, it's a community. I'm working with the, the listeners. And so, you know, just let me know. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Thank you.